How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 205. Ooh, it's the most wonderful time of the year, Zeke. It is indeed the most wonderful time the most of the year. Most expensive time of the year. <laughs> My wallet is <laughs> having a tough time. Oh. I don't know about you. Oh, it, yeah, don't worry. It is. <laughs> But getting, is- my wallet's getting its fill this year, don't worry. <laughs> I think I think I've spent the most I've ever spent on any Christmas this year, but I think relative to how much money's in my bank account, it's not the highest percentage of my mm. Yeah, it's like, oh I spent five hundred dollars on Christmas this year. It's like you had seven hundred dollars in your account, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it's your whole savings. This but- is most definitely the most I've ever spent on Christmas. But I have no, no problem with that because, you know, Things are looking up. It's been a, it's been a good year. Yeah, it has been a good year. It's, it's been a great few weeks for you, mate. Yeah, it's been, it's been a wild six weeks. Uh, ticking off a lot of um on your to do list, which is like your whole life to do list. Yeah, a lot of ticks occurring right now. It's a bit wild. Like we were having a conversation because, <laughs> so you know, not to jump into the career stuff. But, sure. Um, you know, obviously graduating on Friday. It was like we were having dinner, and they were like the last like it felt like the, like a couple of the my the boys we know, mutual mm. friends of ours, were like it feels like the last six weeks have just been about you, and not even like <laughs> you being like egotistical. It just feels it like just, every week you've has... achieved something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but I guess I've gone two years without achieving anything, so it's probably like <laughs> it's probably fair they were accrued in a very short period of time. So. I mean, but that's I feel like that's the life of people in film in general that's the vibe is you spend so many months in a year working 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 and then and then you get like your red carpet and you get a night to celebrate yeah it's all about you and then and then so i feel like that's kind of what you're doing right now i mean oscar season of my life exactly (laughs) there we go we're coming up on oscar season in the industry as well but we got a lot to get through before we even jump into that it's like it's gonna be a big episode today big episode i promise you it's it's like an advent calendar it goes for 25 days i know much like this <laughs> potentially this podcast <laughs> it's gonna go for 25 hours <laughs> <laughs> but jake to kick yes. us off yes film of the week mm. home alone chris columbus's director's corner yes do you have any trivia from the film of the week i do now it's not so much about chris columbus i'm sure your fun fact might be mm-hmm. mine's more about daniel stern of course plays in the film now a lot of people comically conf- uh, compare this film to Die Hard, and that this is basically just a Die Hard film. Mm-hmm. Which you know, yeah, I can see it. I can see it. in a lot of ways sort it of. is. Now, I think one of the contributing factors to this, other than the obvious ones, you know, criminals trying to break in, Christmas themed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that Daniel Stern worn rubber feet during the violent barefoot scenes he had to participate in, much like Bruce Willis did in mm. Die Hard. So there's a bit of a similarity there. I thought that was fun. Out of the many, 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 many trivia notes about this film, which is... Probably the most I've ever seen on a film. Oh, like, like, yeah, like on the list. From the IMDb list, yeah. especially, yeah. No, it's a it's massive... Uh, compared to Stutz's, like, zero submissions. <laughs> I actually added a submission to Barbie last week, before the, the trailer came out, I should mention. But um, which I thought, if you go on there, you can tell which one mine is because it has zero likes compared to the others. Have like eighty people found this interesting, and right. it, yeah. But I, and you know, what? I'll actually mention it later when I talk about what I've been watching. Zeke, what's your fun trivia fact for Home Alone? Well, you know, it, it's funny because this time, you know, we've done a couple of Christmas films in this time of year. 
Um, this is definitely one of the films that is synonymous with a lot of people's childhoods. Hmm. Probably, arguably, one of the most successful Christmas films um, and definitely mm. one of the most foundational pillars in the, at least the, what we would call the contemporary Christmas film. Okay. Um, and I found this quite interesting to, to sort of comment on how widespread this film uh, has covered. Uh, this film's considered a, a considered a traditional Christmas movie in Poland. It has mm. aired on national television during prime time Christmas season every uh, every year since 1990. Um, in 2011, the movie aired on December 23rd with an audience of over 5 million, making it the most popular show that aired during Christmas season in Ooh. Poland. So, not yeah, only is I, it... This was actually on the Wikipedia as well. So it's funny to see it on both mm-hmm. sides as a fun fact, because I think... Well, it, it's, it's it, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. That this American film has such a, a resonance in a central European country. And yeah, well, I think part of it I was reading was to do with... Um, the fact that they didn't get a lot of Western... It was one of the very first Western films or Christmas Western films that came. It was something to do with that. Yeah, yeah, it was just a different flavour for them, I guess. And I think if you ask, uh, particularly in such a multicultural country like Australia, and you Mm. go, what's the the go-to Christmas film for your family? Mm. You'll get an array of different answers. I mean, I... Grinch. Love Actually. Yes. It's, you know, these films that... um, So it's, it's interesting that obviously this joins that that company for sure oh, yeah, definitely Home Alone's a, I, I, I remember it very vividly two years ago it was I think I had my PS5 plugged in it was the D- Disney Plus and it was just like oh Home Alone let's play it yeah. uh, and not everyone's watching it intently but it's just on you know in the background Well, so it is one of those films a film that I actually didn't watch until I was a fully grown adult so here we go oh. here we go so we'll talk wow. about what the different viewing experiences entail with a Christmas film. Yeah, that that's interesting. Well, it, it, it might even play into the poster behind you, Zeke. 1,100 films you must watch at least once in your lifetime. It's Home Alone on that list. I would say it's on the poster behind me. Um, it isn't. Really? I was shocked by that. Shook Home Alone's it. not on the poster behind you. That is insane to me. It's like the, one of the quintessential Christmas movies. I guess it comes back to this conversation about what makes a good Christmas film? Mm. We can we can dive into that. Okay. Um, in the second half of the film, uh, second half of the show. Right. Um, this is this is kind of like its own film. Yeah. It's a sideshow of the film. It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, would this be on yours? Oh, I I think it absolutely would. But it does open up a wider question. I mean, first off, I rewatched it last. Obviously, I've seen it many many times. Of yeah. Course. Um, last time was probably the first time I sat watched it from start to finish and really like just trying to analyze it, especially because we're doing a director's corner. I really wanted to take in Chris Columbus's filmmaking choices, like what he does with the camera and how it moves and how the edit flows. And, and to what extent does he rely on, on McKellie Culkin to sort of carry the film? Cause I think a lot of his films, we'll get into it. Of course, I think a lot of his films do sort of rely on their titular characters slash uh, actors. Not, not that Kevin McAllister is a titular character, but, you know, someone like Mrs. Doubtfire is mm. in Robin Williams. And it's like, that's totally a film you watch for Robin Williams and only Robin Williams. And how much does his style affect the film versus Robin Williams being the film? He is the film. So I think there's a lot of interesting discussions there. But the other one I wanted to point out was, is a movie ever worsened by the fact that it is a Christmas movie? Because... I feel like it is a bit of a cheat code. Now, we, we actually talked about this last Christmas, Zeke, on episode 154. Mm. We had a little discussion, because I think I was talking about Hawkeye, the show, and how they incorporated 
music, the Christmas music into the show, and it just kind of, it felt like a cheat. I was like, this doesn't make the, it doesn't make it worse. I, don't, I can't think of any film where it, it, Christmas makes it worse. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I, I think I haven't thought about it much since. I think last it's year. a it's a fine line with the Christmas film, mm. but we can kind of explore that with the film of the week. I sure, think it's a really good way to talk about it. But I think it's a, it is a good conversation piece that will come up in the second half of the show. Mm. Would I include this on my list? I think for the sake of I prefer other Christmas films. No. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think there are more uh, potent Christmas films and you know if I if I get a choice between Die Hard and Home Alone I'm probably going to pick Die Hard to be honest interesting <laughs> um, that is very that's interesting that's an age cause... that could be an age related thing or mm. uh, or yeah I don't know uh, but we can we can dive into it. I think yeah, yeah Chris Columbus's career when we talk about his directorial mm. style hits a very prominent peak and um, it's in... got a very interesting trajectory that's yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's not his only Christmas film. <laughs> no. But, but it's probably his best one. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. For sure. Well, guess what? It's time for us to move into what we've watched in the last week. So, Jake, Ooh, exciting. have you caught anything in the last week? I've caught a few things. I'll kind of rattle off with some things. I mentioned Bombshell. I, I didn't mention Bombshell. I mentioned Barbie. And it's actually because of Bombshell. I was rewatching Bombshell, mm. the Jay Roach film, where he's just trying to be Adam McKay. And I remember when I first watched this in the theaters, like very early 2024, it's sort of award season discussion. It ended up winning Best Makeup, of course. And I still can't... I don't know what it is about this film. Like, I don't hate it. I know there's a lot of people who really do hate it. And I guess they just don't like the conversation around... It's not necessarily Me Too movement, because it's the yeah. it's more like the Fox movement. That, it kind of predates a little bit of that. But I don't know. It's like... It, it's almost feels like a guilty pleasure at this point because I know people hate it. People don't think the discussion is nuanced enough. Um, I think, you know, Charlie's performance is absolutely outstanding. I love, um, you know, watching Megan Kelly and stuff. And she did a lot of stuff on the Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing, which was just, it was interesting because it just felt like such a middle, if not slightly more conservative take than everyone else's take was, which was quite interesting. But anyway, the reason I uh, mentioned that in relation to Barbie, is that the, one of the characters, I think Kate, I want to get her name correct, I'm going to quickly look up the Barbie IMDb, because I want to read you the trivia fact that I um, submitted, so to speak, because mm-hmm. there are only three in there right now, there's Ryan Gosling is the only choice, was the only choice for Ken, which I think that could be better, oh, there's 12 now, oh, look at that, a bunch of people added some, did mine get deleted, Zeke? It's fine. Oh, no, it didn't. Here we go. And 17 of 20 people found it interesting. Are you ready, Zeke? There you go. My fun fact for IMDb. It's a free fun fact for the podcast listeners. In the film Bombshell, Margot Robbie playing Kayla Pobliski. She's a fake character. It's not based on a real person. Uh, is jokingly referred to as Anchor Barbie. And the character who uh, who says this is played by Kate McKinnon. McKinnon? Yeah. Uh, who also stars in Barbie 2023. There you go. So, yeah, look at that little tie-in, and, and look, people found it interesting. Three people didn't find it interesting. I want to find they, them. They, they made a they made a real potent point. I know they, they were not interested. <laughs> they actively in your read Kate it. McKinnon one-liners from a Roach film. <laughs> Sons of bitches. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so I re- is it just screenshots that have been released right now? The trailer's out. 
Well, the trailer's out. You haven't seen this trailer? I have not seen this trailer. Oh, dude. Okay, I'm going to show you this one photo on my computer. I've seen the photos. You've seen this photo. No, no, that, that's the trailer. So yeah, it's, I've seen that. I've okay, seen that, that of, one. Of giant Barbie from 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> Which, by the way, all the people commenting like, guys, this is a reference to 2001. It's like, yeah, we know. Our local cinema does very similar things about their candy yeah. bar. It's yeah. not the most obscure reference in the world. Congratulations. Yeah. But I thought it looked absolutely phenomenal, this trailer. You have to watch it. it it's so clearly taking the mickey out of it and it's doing like the Truman Show meets Barbie sort of thing yeah. and the costumes are all vibrant. And, and even I mean, just look like at who's parody. working on it. I like, know. <laughs> it's... We, we're kind of getting what we expect out of the film, aren't exactly. we? Exactly. It's, it's yeah. you know, it's... Because it's, it's Bombok and Gerwig, isn't it? They together? both wrote it. Yeah. And she's directing it. Yes. Okay, well, 100% we're going to get, like, this... Probably this Francis Ha self-awareness meets, <laughs> like, I don't know, probably something we have never really seen from either of them before, mm. which is enticing. I'm excited about that part, because I think you're right. You, she can't do a film like this and not have to bring something new to the table. This can't yeah. just be, like, Little Women Barbie. Like, that doesn't make any sense. It has to be something she's... And, well, they both thought about because they both wrote it really intensely about how do we take this brand and how do we make a film about this without it being commercial? Because they're not going to make a commercial film. Yeah, and without it having the... To be honest, mm. not to throw haze at McKay again, but okay. not having that, that such that over-the-top agenda where mm. it's so, like, anti... It's so... I hate using left and right wing, but so sure, left wing, sure. like flipping the bird at the right wing satire, you right. know, like, cause that comedy works only so far. And then you get very like, okay, well, like, to be honest, don't look up. It's a prime example of it just sure. being taken too far. Whereas vice was walking a very fine line was starting to teeter against mm. it. And it's interesting. So that's, and I think that there'll be more, clever satire in, in I, yeah I agree it, it can't just satire. be like Barbie's bad for body like and body and mental health mm-hmm. it's like yes we know there's got to be way more to this and I think they're both going to deliver you're absolutely yeah. right I mean the trailer looks phenomenal speaking of which the Oppenheimer trailer just dropped this morning Jeez, big and time, it big looks time year. phenomenal absolutely phenomenal and you got your standard like yeah, Chris Nolan what is it Flair. in three or four days is the the next hmm? Spider-Verse trailer dropping is that what is oh well that? they did drop a trailer I don't okay. know if that's the one that's gonna be a the big one yeah half of it was just footage from the old film with a narration but okay. I kind of that one I'm just, I'll just walk in and watch it yeah I was like it's so stylistically interesting I kind of don't want to see it beforehand well you already know what the the style is and sure. you know the, and you bought into the story so hmm what what's advertising you to go see the film? Why do you need to see the trailer? Yeah. This is my thing. I just don't get. It's like I'm going. to You're go like watch this Opp- for all for all films. Exactly. Yep. I'm yeah. gonna watch Oppenheimer. To be honest, I would watch the Barbie trailer simply because I don't know what to expect. It's yeah. enough for me to watch that. But it's like I and, get great. And, com- to be, and to be fair, this Barbie trailer is a teaser. Like it's yeah. probably not even most of the footage is probably not going to be in the film. Yeah. It's an aesthetic thing. It's a style thing. Yeah. Like I, you know, when I go see movies and those trailers like pop up, mm. it's like I'm not going to go. Oh, avert my eyes. Like I watch them when they're there, and I think. Yeah. When I saw one of the films I saw this week, <laughs> just imagine you in the theater, like, ah, no, I can't look. <laughs> yeah. And it's like I, I saw some great um, trailers in the last couple. Like I really want to see Babylon because yeah, the trailer was yeah. played in front of me. I was like, yeah, cool. Okay, see. And then they, like, I've seen, like, little bits of, like, Chazelle working on La La Land. I forgot, like, 
like when he did the back and forth between Stone and Gosling, oh, and yeah. I was like, oh, the whip pan, whip pan, whip and pan, I hope we pan. get more of that sort of stuff. That right. like that flair, energy. The, yeah. the vibrant flair that he has with that, and um, yeah, you know. But that's enough for me. It's like I didn't yeah. even need to see a trailer for one of the films I saw this week, and I saw the name, and that's like, yeah, cool, yeah, that's enough. yeah. That's sometimes that's all you need. No, I agree, yeah. but I'm excited for both those films. Um, I'm I'm really excited for the Barbie one. It just it looks like it's that perfect self awareness, like you said. Yep. Um, so that's gonna be great. I rewatched Swiss Army Man in the last week. I finally convinced my mum to watch it. Mm. <laughs> so we both watched a Paul Dano film this week. Ah, well there you go. I, I like it. I'm gonna I'm gonna segue in very nicely, Zeke. Don't yeah. worry, it's yeah. gonna come. But I will say. First off, I still think it's an absolutely fantastic film. And like when it, uh, it was like episode seven, it was very early mm-hmm. on this show when I first watched it. And I thought it was a masterpiece. And and in a lot of ways, when I first saw Everything Everywhere All at Once, I was still sort of like, Swiss Army Man speaks to me more. Mm-hmm. I think it's still fantastic. It it showcases the Daniel's imaginations. I love the embracing of weirdness and sort of the themes around that. The fact that every single department... Uh, from props and production design to the sound and acapella music and just like they all had something really meaty to chew on which is something I really want to take into my own productions is making sure every department feels like they have something really interesting mm. to do for them and not just like ah oh, and the sound you just record the dialogue it's fine it's like no 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 let's let's think outside the box and give the sound department something to really be excited <laughs> about doing so I, I love the Daniels for all of that and, and what Swiss Army Man offers in that regard but here comes the butt seek big butt if I saw this film this past week for the first time, if I hadn't seen it before and had such a high opinion of it before, I probably wouldn't give it five stars again. Oh. Now I'm not gonna change. I'm not gonna go on Letterboxd and change my score or anything. That like it, that five star review reflects what I saw at the time when I saw it, and that's what's special about this show. Is it's not the fact that I watched Swiss Army Man uh, and talked about how great it was. It's the fact that I watched it on episode seven. Yeah, and thought it was a masterpiece, and then rewatching it for episode two hundred five, and I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that magic would have hit again, and I don't know if that's a place I was at that time when I saw the film and needed that message. I will say, rewatching, I'm like, it's, it is quite on the. Some of the dialogue is incredibly on the nose, and it is in everything, everywhere as well. Just like the the messaging of mm. even um. I forget the character's name, but in everything, everywhere, he's talking about you know ever, we all just need to like love each other essentially um and you know we're allowed to be afraid and all that messaging is like i'm sure there were more visual ways to tell that but it is very punchy it's effective anyway i just wanted to mention that because i thought i think that's i mean we view things at different times and get different effects at different times exactly that's a, that's a, a constantly changing process but it is interesting when you see a film and you walk out and you go for five stars i thought that was absolutely amazing mm and then you let it digest and then you come back to, and you've let it digest it's left your body completely yeah. and then you go back and watch it again you go back to the same restaurant have the exact same perfect dining the, experience the, the meal with, and the service and, and everything you come back and go well that was still really good mm. but it wasn't the the ratatouille sending you back to yeah. <laughs> eight years old <laughs> moment yeah, um, exactly. well that's a good comparison because I literally went to a restaurant last Saturday where the last time I went was a pretty subpar experience. And then on Saturday, I was like, actually, that was a much better experience. Mm. The food was nice. The service was a lot better. It was just, yeah, you're right. It's, it's sometimes you do the same thing and it changes mm. every time. It's like the Georgia O'Keeffe door paintings. Yeah. And Breaking Bad. No, I think that's, that's very fair. <laughs> very fair. Now, Zeke. Yeah. There is a huge film that I saw in the last week. 
Yeah. And there's a huge film that you saw also in the last week. Now, they're both going to come up in our awards discussion very soon. So before we do that, would you like to start about the big film you saw in this yeah. past week? Um, I might as well quickly do the entree of I went and saw one of those free telethon community oh, okay. theatre screenings. Fair enough. Um, I've actually, we've kind of gone through, mm. seen all the free screenings and just every, they release with two weeks to spare and we yep. just buy the tickets anyway and because and, oh, they're okay. free tickets. Right. So it's like this Wednesday, we're going to go see Muppets Christmas Carol at the Murdoch nice. one. Yeah. And on Sunday, yesterday, I saw Arthur Christmas for the first time. Ah, oh, okay. It was fine. It was, it was a, <laughs> I don't know. It, it was it good. It was different. It was creative, I guess. But like we've talked about, it's, you either have a lot of Christmas movies that fit into the subpar consumable. That's great. That was mm. nice. Clear message. Understood. Move on. Or they're really trash, and then very few go into the profound, earth-moving. Sure, that was f- a fantastic Christmas film. Sure, like I can probably less name less than five that would fit in that category. Mm-hmm. This sits in the middle. This was a fine film. It had some okay. laughs. It was simple, easy to understand. Um, not really an antagonist in the film. Very a bit murky. Oh, interesting. Um, takes place over one night, as you guess. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was it was okay. It was okay. Um, but yes, the big film I saw was uh, the latest from Mr. Spielberg, mm. Stephen. Um, not Clark Spielberg. <laughs> Just in case you got uh, confused, yeah. <laughs> um, Which Spielberg we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I saw The Fablemans. So oh, I was lucky excellent. enough to cash in on my Lunar Privilege card. This is a fun little, little sideshow tip. If you're mm. a Lunar Privilege card holder... Or the, I think they're changing it next year to something else. I think it's just called the Lunar Club or something like that. Oh, yeah, I, need privileges. Renew, I need to renew my next month. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, you're entitled to two uh, free tickets around your birthday. And it says on the on the voucher, it goes, oh, this goes for everything except um, film festival releases, 3D films and private function films. Right. Um but it says nothing about early release films. Mm, preview screenings. <laughs> preview no. screenings. Yeah. Um, so I go in and I say, look, I have this voucher. I was a bit... Uns- like, I was still polite. Like, totally willing to pay the ticket. Sure. But, yeah. Not only Engage did it. I get it, yeah. two free tickets to go see the Fablemans, but because it was a preview screening at Lunar on SX, we got two free drinks and two free popcorns. Hey, so it ends up being, it was ended up being a very profitable birthday present out of $25 a year plus discount tickets all year round. So that, that goes in with my $11 movie one from a couple of weeks. Excellent. There you go. Um, Playing the games. Like but yeah, that. look, I'm not gonna lie. The, the Fablemans is probably the best Spielberg film I've seen from him mm. in what? 15 years, maybe. Wow. 15 16 years, maybe since Catch Me If You Can was probably the last time I Jeez, really enjoyed well that, it. That's basically 20 years right there. Yeah. Well, I tried. I went looking through. I was like, hmm. There are good films in there. Sure. Mm. I haven't seen Bridge of Spies. I heard that wasn't bad. Yeah. Um, I didn't care for The Post at all. Sure. Didn't care f- at all for, obviously, Ready Player One. Mm. Um, and West Side Story was... Yeah, it was okay. I think a lot of people enjoyed that one more. Yeah, it was people, good. People were like, Spielberg's back. They had that moment last year. Yeah, it which, was good. I feel like you might have had that moment this year. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he was back. Like, I definitely, like, I think we sat there when we did the episode. And we went, it was good. 
and obviously we were comparing it between the original and, and this one. And yeah, that kind of skewed the conversation almost. Yeah, a little bit. direction, yeah. I think that the film's well-directed, um, you know, and maybe it was it was inhibited by the fact it was going up against an, an Oscar-winning film that did have does have blemishes on it from its cultural points of view. Right. But is a very well-orchestrated film. Um, and then obviously had the whole Ansel Elgort stuff happening at the same time, which I think yeah. definitely didn't help the sure, film's sure. push. Um, so, yeah, th- this film was just incredible. And mm. I, was, I was just checking just then, because obviously the the one who plays Sammy, who is the sorry, the embodiment of young Spielberg, mm, okay. um, played by uh, Gabrielle LaBelle, you've, you've got to think, like, this is sort of that... Looking at his, he's only cast in two other films credited on Letterbox, which is The Predator and a film called Dead Shack, which both are not mm. looked favorably upon right. in uh, the Letterbox. been kind of onto that. He did that as well last year with, um, there wasn't a lot of people who had been in a lot of films. It was almost like he was kind of mm. starting their careers for them. And you got to think, you're like, well, no surprise, this is, you know, he's going to be pushed into the conversation for best act like lead actor this year yeah wow um and even then he'll get recognition for that performance alone because he has to carry the whole film essentially Mm. yeah he's got michelle williams on one side and paul dano on the other side as his parents (laughs) who do get significant portions of screen time but it all centers around yeah right labelle so the film's incredible it's a very heartwarming story it's obviously an incredibly personal it's um Prior to the screening, you get a piece to camera from Steven Spielberg thanking you for watching the film. And, okay, that's cool. Which is a really sort of bridges how personal the story is. And mm. I don't know. It's a film that, you know, as film lovers, it's just, it's the epitome of, of what, and even film, particularly filmmakers. Yeah. It's the film that you sort of have always wanted there for you. And it feel like because right. it, it's coming from, you know, one the man, of the, the man the, himself. <laughs> the, you know, as we've said, we've put him in that number one spot for is he the greatest director of all time? And he's got very fair reason. He's definitely the greatest Western director of all time. Mm. Um, and I'm willing to you know sit on that. There's so much reasoning behind it. Sure. Um, the fact that it's coming from him, you know, could it easily have become self-aggrandizing. Um, yeah. Well, I I always worry when I'm watching a film. It's like a film about filmmakers and filming and i always get a little worried about that at that point you have to kind of strike that balance mm. but i i am excited to see this as, still. as someone who only recently watched that documentary spielberg yep it's a one i would 100 percent take in with you because it adds a you really gain an understanding and, and empathy even more for sammy because obviously it's such a it's close to life yeah script you're you know, I, I discussed, you know, the, the film does heavily go around the family. It's a family drama. Yeah. So, and it, it sort of, it follows that sort of, you know, marriage story over a period of time. And, mm. um, but from the perspective, way more of the children. Right. Um, not just Sammy, but his siblings. So, it is really good. It's one of... It's. I mean, Seth Rogen's in it. It's one of his better performances. Oh, um, <laughs> it's one of those things that you can. It, it. It would be put in the company of his performance in Steve Jobs, um, mm. like that really strong, 
this is what Seth Rogen could be doing um, right. more of. No, it um, sounds like he's doing more of it now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he's definitely moving away from uh, comedy roles and stoner comedy Dan- stuff. Yeah, I yeah. mean, for Dano, I mean, what can you what can you say? It's just it, it, to see him Paul in Dano's such a grown a up in such a grown up role, you know, is okay. kind of wild because it's like. You don't think it, you forget that Little Miss Sunshine was so long ago. Right, it's right. like 16, 17 years ago. And and it's like he's now playing this fully grown adult. Like, he's got multiple kids. Like, he's a middle aged man in this film. Right. Um, and he plays it really well. <laughs> um, he's got to be like early 40s now. He would have to be late 30s, early 40s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Honestly, it's a it's a fantastic film. This oh, is the I'm so excited to see. This it. is it. This is to me. This is you know we had this conversation about Anthony Hopkins with the father. It's like he doesn't have to do anymore. Spielberg will make other films. He'll make them until he drops dead. Right. But this is and same with Hopkins. But Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yeah, but we want them to. I think yeah. we want them to. They're not going to ruin their legacy at this point. Their legacy is insurmountable. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, Even if they make. You know more duds from now. I mean, you know, even going back to like Oppenheimer, it's like I think Chris Nolan's last film was his worst film, and yet I'm still unbelievably excited about his next film. Like some directors, you can't tarnish the image. This is not possible. You can't tarnish Steven Spielberg's image. No, no matter how many bad films he makes in the 21st century. Yeah, and no, I, I would say that I know the only film I could inherently say that was really bad. And as someone who's now going through the catalogue, I'm finally... Sure. I want to become the Spielberg completionist. I just want to do it all. <laughs> yeah. um, and Good I'm, work. like, you know, I'm at the back end of another one of his films, so I'll talk about that next week. Okay. Um, I won't talk about it this week. Um, but it's like going through Munich and going, oh, that was a really solid film. Like, mm. next film. Like, you know, it's like, I thought Munich was great. I thought Catch Me If You Can's great. Since then, it's like, look, I haven't seen Bridge of Spies. I've heard it's pretty pretty good so who knows um i but didn't care for the post thought the post was just the uh, oh i've got tom hanks and mel shreep and i don't don't know it just felt like such a nothing film especially when you put it up against like spotlights coming out two three years earlier and it's like such a good film yeah about like freedom of press and breaking the story and Mm -hmm. ethics of of Journalism, journalism yeah it's like yeah cool you're, you're kind of late to this party i feel like um yeah but no look I'm, and ready I'm, player one was just we don't need to talk about that no one we is. don't talk about bruno we don't talk about ready player one <laughs> <laughs> weird comparison but sure no I've, i don't know why that was on my mind i still haven't even seen Encanto, but that's all right the big film I saw this. Oh, I thought week. you were talking about Bruno, like the Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh no, 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 no! <laughs> we don't talk about Bruno. No, I don't even fair. know the song. Well, yeah. We don't have to talk about that film either. So, that's still an odd grab. I will give you that. No, but the, the big film I saw, and again, this is also going to play into the award season. I oh. watched Avatar: oh, I The Way. I need to hear. Insane men talk water. to me about this. Really? I don't are know. There, are there insane men talking no, about look, this? I'll just say it because i don't think liam and carlo have ever listened to this show um <laughs> but they come in guns are blazing on yeah like on i don't friday care. it's like bill burry's like my wife's not gonna watch this yeah and they go they go we just went and saw avatar and they were like it's better than the original like it's so good it's so thought-provoking and then i'm mm-hmm. seeing like james cameron's gonna finally explain why jack couldn't fit on the the, the the board next oh, to Rose. That's, that's funny. Um, so if he wasn't so egotistical, I'd be like, "That's funny." 
but yeah, I don't okay. know. So okay, um, look, he's got an aversion to wood. I rewatched the first one. I haven't seen it in thirteen years. I haven't seen it since. How was that? What Build- a- Avatar? Yeah, yeah, the original one. How was your rewatch? Oh yeah, well, I will say I was. It reminded me of a time when I was excited to hear about the final battle is twenty five minutes long. Yay! Now I was like, oh my god, just get to the story. <laughs> do you remember that? Do you, do you remember that used to be a thing where like they would use that as a promotional tool and get people excited? That's actually true. The, though. the final battle is an hour long. You know, it's like think back to like, and you know, go from one egomaniac director to another, but like with Ridley Scott's Gladiator, mm. and it's like the final battle is like so good right. but it's like got no reason to be as good as it is but it's solely because of how good Scott's pacing in Gladiator is right yeah but it's just all story there's no battle like the battle there's the what the battle in the first part of the film that introduces you to Russell Crowe's mm. character and then that's it for most of it yeah. like there's a little survival here a little survival there but it's mostly just talking <laughs> it's like <laughs> but it's so epic and yeah yeah you're 100% right. It's like when Avengers... It's 100, it was like Avengers. Like the whole third act's just in the city. Yeah, the original Avengers. The original Avengers. Yeah, yeah. and that was definitely a thing. The fight scene is this long. I remember when people got excited about that. I was like, is that exciting anymore? Well, that was kind of the whole carry of the superhero movies, I feel. like. I guess so, Civil yeah. War, the big marketing was... There's going to be a big fight between all your superheroes. That's true. And yeah. then the big epic battle between the three of them while Zemo's just chilling like <laughs> just hanging out hanging out in his little pod <laughs> oh god but look I mean that's my joke my actual authentic thoughts on the Avatar rewatch was like it holds up better than I expected it to the story very serviceable you got your character you got your backstory there's no like glazing plot holes either, it's environmentalism themes yeah. all come through they suit there's interesting stuff about the mixture of human and Navi DNA and you know the 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 military being overly destructive with their and, and the resource management and the uh, mining and all of that like it's all it all services the wonderful effects and I made sure to watch the Blu-ray I'm not going to watch a streaming low bitrate version I'm going to watch the Blu-ray that I've owned for the last twelve thirteen years and it still holds up it kind mm. of looks like you know what it kind of looks like it's like watching or playing Horizon on a PS5 but like. It's like it's a 1080 output instead of a 4K output, so everything just looks slightly blurry. And like, oh, I wish this was like a, a sharper version. <laughs> but, but you could tell it's all beautiful, and and the pacing. I was shocked at how good the pacing was. So I was like, I think it kind of holds up pretty well. And watching the new one, Avatar: The Way of Water, it's the same movie. It's the same movie, uh, albeit a little deeper. To, to the point you made earlier where it's it's you know the, the, it's so deep and I, I, it's like slightly deeper <laughs> they it's like going it's like going from that part of the, the pool where you're at waist height to like chest height <laughs> kind of kind of I think no well look I, your head's still above water but it's it's the same vibrantly beautiful looking CGI tool to force you got the explosive action um, like I said with the themes they sort of do go a little deeper with you know you had that mixture of DNA before and, and now they're sort of going further with okay well let's look at like some of the offspring from these dna um specimens like and like let's look at the earlier linear 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 linearage my so god so jake's had kids speak. right so jake's had kids i don't want to spoil too much for people who like really want to go and see it but like but he has a family the, now i thought that's in the trailer though oh, i don't a... think i even watched the trailers 
not I'm properly. I'm pretty sure that, that 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 everyone was pretty clear that that's what this was about. Okay, well, yeah, he has he has a family now. Like he has a Lion King. They have four. Vibe. They have four kids, and then the military returns, and then it. And you know what I mean? It's just it's the same film, really. But who's the bad guy? It's it's the it's same some... guy. It's the same guy. But this what? is what this like is the what... dude with the. Oh, like the, the Stephen the... Yang or Stephen Lane, whatever his name is. It's the same dude, but this is what I'm saying. Like, it is almost... that the dude who's like unobtainian, like the yes. the nerdy guy? No, not no. The guy, the military guy, Stephen Lane, with the, with the, the claw. But doesn't he die? Well, yes, he does die. But this is what I'm saying. Is like the film is almost trying too hard to be the same movie by find. Like, it feels like James Cameron just wants the same cast, so he's finding unique ways with the, again the themes of the DNA mixture and the Navi and like you know creating offspring and the lineage and all of, like it all, it feels like he's doing all of that just to get the same cast back to make the same movie I don't think it's a bad film at all I actually found it very enjoyable so he's a Terminator okay <laughs> I get it I'm just like I'm trying to explain here what, like how this goes but mm. I like I said I, for 3 hours and 12 minutes I wasn't bored it's visually absolutely stunning and now it kind of feels like the 4K switch is being flipped yep. from what I was saying about the original so it's like oh my god this all just looks absolutely fantastic and the water effects and everything. it's just like it's absolutely unbelievable but that being said I can really only enjoy this because it's all of that with a serviceable story serviceable in that it works and the themes are kind of interesting but if it if you didn't like the first film you're not going to like this one mm-hmm. if you liked it you're probably going to like this one because it's the same movie does Michelle Rodriguez come back no she's like the only one that doesn't actually <laughs> <laughs> That's a good pull. I will say though, so Zoe Saldana, yeah, her obviously she's kind of like a main character in the, in the first one. That's obviously who Jake hooks up with mm. and or Sam Worthington, whatever. It felt weird in this film. I was sort of noting this. I was like, she's kind of just like a sad, crying mother this entire film, and it felt very purposeful because at the very end they kind of like unleash her, which now she's allowed to be violent and like a hunter again, like in the original film. And that was just odd to me. Because I could tell the whole time. I was like, it, it just feels like she's now a mother and that's her role. And it kind of, I don't know, it kind of fell into that cliche, whichever was weird. Just so they can, like, flip it at the end and make her yeah, a, but a I badass guess, again. This is the thing. It's like, let's look at the Cameron catalog. It's Is he one to make really. It, it does feel a bit odd. I'm trying to, th- I'm but trying I, to think. What I'm saying is. Has like, he ever he, written a maternal character before? I'm trying to be able to talk. Well. Sarah Connor Terminator 2 yeah yeah very maternal yeah, in a very cool. different action-y way but nevertheless I just thought it was weird because like it just felt so unlike I mean yeah she has kids in this film so she is different and more protective of them but again it, was, it wasn't really protection she was just kind of upset the matriarch that they kept getting trouble I don't know I, I just thought that was odd look I'll, I'll end it on this and it's like, it's like I said and I actually wrote this in my review I said that you're going to like this or dislike it as much as you liked or disliked the original so for me it's kind of they're both in three and a half star territory cool of like amazing text serviceable story but you don't get you still don't get the James Cameron god greatest it's, it's, of all it is director. funny it is very very funny and I don't okay. think it's warranted and I think I think I just read in the first I guess so Wednesday Thursday Friday the film made about 480 million globally which mm. is like pretty good but for how much they need to make back for it to break even is hopefully the word of mouth continues to be at least good because I generally think the word of mouth it's is long, generally it's a good. long summer isn't it or winter in mm, in America for us. 
So it's long winter for us. <laughs> yeah. So it, I guess it comes back to there. There'll probably be not next to no competition. Sure. Well, you know, it depends. Like, how well does the Fablemans hit when it comes out, like in wide release and, and films like that? Oh, I don't know. If it would. I don't know. I don't know if it would. Like, it's not. It doesn't feel like it goes in the Spielberg blockbuster category. It right. Goes in the, it feels too personal. Yeah. Yeah, it goes in the... Like I said, it's the filmmaker... Like, to be honest, Lou and I sat down and we were like, out of all the films we had seen together this year, this is the film we enjoyed the most. Right. It's definitely the film I probably enjoyed the most. Um, like, I really liked Everywhere. You know, Everything Everywhere all at once. Mm. But it's... It's, you know, that's just because it's a bit different. It's a bit quirky. It's... It's very creative, mm. whereas this film just goes back to sort of what makes the filmmaking experience and telling a story really compelling. Yeah. Um, and that personal touch, because it's like, you know, if you've been a fan or you've grown up with Spielberg films, which most of us all have, yeah, we all feel rewarded for watching this film mm. because we're seeing sort of the origins of an artist and we're seeing this artist who's coming to the back end of his life reflect back on that. Sure. And have such really doesn't shy away from like pointing out the troubles of his ish, like the troubles of his upbringing, um, but also the flaws in himself, Hmm. which could easily, you know, some directors wouldn't do if they were making a film about themselves. Okay. I don't think. Or they would try and torture, make themselves out like they were really tortured to just gain nothing more than, you know, sympathy. Right. Right. Oh, look how hard I had it, and look what I accomplished. Like mm. in the the wrong way of spinning it, I guess. Okay. Um. And this sort of avoids that. I would say so. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Like I said, it focuses more on his family more than anything else, and sort of how your upbringing can shape you as an artist or you as a person mm. inherently. But it's really interesting to hear that take that it's just that same level of adequate well good sci-fi cinema yeah well that's it it depends what you're looking for i mean if you if you love pandora and the world and the, and the world it's like yeah it's all is it worth 15 there. years though this is the thing right 16 17 years right 15 was it 15 13 13, 13, 13 years, years. <laughs> 13 years december 2009 was it worth 13 years i think this film I mean, be? look, the thing I didn't realise is that the difference between Titanic and Avatar was also about 12 years. I didn't realise that. He does other things. He's not just a director. Yeah. But when I realised that, I was like, oh, interesting. So this is just James Cameron. Mm. I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, I was always very curious to see, just because we've heard it. It's not the fact that it took 13 years. It's the fact that we've just been hearing about it for 13 years. And it's almost surreal that it's even available. But I think, and I, I wonder if part of this is to do with the whole Disney buying Fox angle, mm. that finally these films seem to be coming out. Because he says the third Avatar is basically shot. It's like he's in 95% shot, whatever that means. Um, I guess yeah, I think there's like a nine-hour cut right now that he has for that film. So mm. we'll see what on earth happens to that. Um, but he's full steam ahead with doing. Does it leave the it third, open for a third film? It, uh, there's one like hanging thread which kind of felt like oh they did that so that there's more film to be had the film this film is the way of water is almost self-contained almost which again is why I kind of f- thought it was very similar to the first one mm. it's like imagine 
watching I'm trying to think of a good example I think Harry Potter's not a bad example where you watch the first one it's oh this kid he goes to a school and I guess he learns like self maybe self acceptance but also finds his place in the world yeah. with these other um, magicians I guess is the word the wizards he's other yeah. the wizards and witches and whatnot. Um, and you can call it there, and there's a backstory for his family, but it doesn't need to be addressed. I would argue, then, that, yeah, even the first two films are almost uh, yeah, that's why open closed books, really. Well, that, I mean, they're, yeah, they're they're a year in the life at Hogwarts. That's how they bill it, sure, right, sure. And it really feels like at the end of that film, you're like, well, I could stop watching this because like Voldemort's defeated in one way or another at the end of yeah, each of these yeah. films. The third film's when the book starts to open up a bit. That's I why think. I don't like this Harry Potter example, because you're right, it is more the third film when it's like, oh, okay, there's there's like a bigger narrative at play and things are not starting to spice up and change. Yeah. And it's like, I'm surprised how not that... Bleh, that was a horrible way to phrase that since I'm surprised that The Way of Water was not that. It kind of mm. just felt like the second Harry Potter film and not like journeying into a wider narrative. Mm-hmm. It just felt like it was the same plot. Yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll see. I'd, I'm not I, unexcited about the third I one. I do find it quite interesting that the concept of Avatar has limited itself to this point to just Pandora. Because reality mm. is the technology <clears throat> basically means they can imitate any other humanoid race. Um, sure, yeah. So it's interesting that this wasn't a collection of standalone films in different worlds. Mm with different themes being explored, like the first film being environmentalism, the second one being capital, like more focus on the capitalism side, corruption, like infiltration. Like you honestly could create whole different genres of films. Sure, yeah. With, with this science fiction concept, but they've kept it to this, this Pandora is the only place where this Avatar program is in effect. Yeah. Well, it's not even a program anymore because they all left at the end of the first one. Yeah. So it's just like they live in harmony and peace for 10 years and then the military just come back. Because, yeah. again, it's about just like the, the, the opportunity for mining on that particular planet. And I will say that you do meet like new... I think they're still Na'vi technically, but they're like more fish-based Na'vi. So they've like got a, like a lighter blue skin and they know how to swim. I think they've got gills and things. So it's like there's a little bit of that. We're opening up the world a bit more. And there's still plenty to explore within just the one planet. It doesn't need to be Star Wars, for example. Yeah. But um, I do see what you mean, especially thematically. It's like that. I don't think this film goes that much deeper than the first film does. It's all the same ideas of environmentalism and you know, and capitalism and the military and mining, and they're all there. All these ideas. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same film. But it doesn't mean it's a bad film. But it's a water battle. <clears throat> it's now in the water. We're in the water now. I got I got a fun little game for you, Zeke. Okay. So this film is three hours and 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. There were only six other films I've ever seen that are longer than that. That you've ever seen? That I've ever seen. Okay. Do you want to guess some of them? The Irishman. Yep. Um, Godfather 1, 2. Only two. Only two. I'll give you Godfather Part 2. Okay. Um, There's at least one more we've done on this podcast. The Lord of the Rings film. Wait, the ex- have you seen the extended cuts? No, but the third Lord of the Rings film yeah. is one of them. Three hours, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, that one, Return of the King. Uh, oh, Gone with the Wind. Yep, Gone with the Wind. Four. You got four out of six. You're doing pretty well. Uh, and that was the only other one we've done on the show. Yeah, it? we haven't done these other two on the show. Uh, oh. He's going for my DVDs. <laughs> Deer Hunter? <laughs> No, shockingly no. Okay. That was close though. 
Okay. That was a very um, close one. I don't know how long Come and See is. No, it's not three hours. Okay. Um, have I'll you give... seen Dr. Zhivago? No, I haven't. Okay. Both of these films came out in the 90s. Really? Yep. Oh, Titanic? Titanic's one of them. Um, and the other one, I do oh, own, you oh. love this film. Schindler's List. Yes. Yeah. Cool. You did it. Well, six. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I forgot. Spielberg films are really long too, yeah. aren't they? Mostly. <laughs> so yeah, Gone with really long. In order of length, Gone with the Wind, Irishman, Godfather Part Two, Return of the King, Schindler's List, and Titanic. You. There you go. What well done, Zeke? A couple of you like, crushed that. Correct guesses, but <laughs> did pretty well. Yeah. When you got the franchise correct, I was like, that's fair enough. Yeah. And well, generally, to be honest, you, you all generally... three. I think all three Lord of the Rings films with extended cuts. The extended cuts probably. I think the Return of the King is only four hours yeah. with extended cuts. Jesus. And it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, the only other thing I'll mention before we move on is I finished the latter half of season six of Rick and Morty. I don't want to talk too much about it, but I will just say, I we've talked about this for years. When, when is the last time it's felt special, Rick and Morty? Um... In, in what way special like thought provoking funny or yeah just like just like relevant sh- when you <laughs> yeah but like relevant like in terms of when you think of the show like I, I, I feel for me it's like after, season 3 was when it just kind of changed almost very mm. quickly as well it just kind of stopped being this very special show and it became like it, it legitimately felt to an extent that the creators had lost interest in their own product right I see what you mean that and they had that point. I like. It almost feels like they're they're, they're bankrolling their actual event, like their ventures. They really want to indulge in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I mean that be- with the fact that the community movies coming out in the next year or two, I feel like the there's going to be a lot of money poured into that for a, for a TV show movie. Right, right. Um, and then who knows what Harmon and what's it, Justin? I forget his name. Quint- long, long, long something. Justin Long. Is Justin it? Long? No. no. Just... Forgetting. I can't remember. Partner, but... I don't, I don't care. Um... <laughs> Look, the individual ventures are fun, but it's like, I'm, I had that realisation as well when I realised like, oh, I only own the first three seasons on Blu-ray and have no incentive to buy the others. I know we're available mm-hmm. at JB. I'm just like, oh, I just don't I, care. I feel like it more. might be just the case of it's it's taking on the world of Family Guy, isn't it, really, where it's almost the standalone episode experiences with no overarching story, which is weird for a show to shift from overarching story to these individualised mm. episodes when you've got something like Family Guy, which starts with the individualised episodes and shifts more into story arc. Is base. that what they're doing? Because that, that's I a very Family South Fam- Park thing as well. Well, I think Family Guy... Yeah, South Park's a great example. Yeah. Um, where... Well, I wouldn't say... Like, it's loose story sure. stuff with Family Guy. It's not, like, overt in any way, shape, or form. But if you look at the first three seasons, particularly two and three for Rick and Morty, mm. you know, you got, like, the the parents getting a divorce is such a massive... That plays out for a while. Massive... And- thread that yeah. follows through and then the, the the relation analyzing the relationship between rick and morty and then we get teased with what that could be mm. like with the rick backstory and they're they're basically like eh, we're not gonna do that we just want to do these fun well what, what's so weird and i think this is the first time i felt like pretty not offended but like well yeah kind of offended was the season five finale when 
it, they were just like, oh, we're just, we're just going to do this just to satisfy and shut up our fans. We're going to do the the line- be super meta about the linear side of the story. We're going to retcon Rick's, Rick's backstory and the fact that it wasn't fake. It is a real backstory, and he's trying to hunt this guy down. And what's so annoying is season six just kind of ignores that, and then in the last five minutes brings it up again. And we're like, oh, next season we're going to focus on this, and I'm going to find the guy who killed my wife and my family. And, and it's like, are you kidding me? This is like it's like serialized bait you're yeah. baiting me into trying to follow a linear or an overarching story or serialized it's like serialized story when this show isn't that and instead of being upset at its fan base for wanting that and then just kind of loosely putting it in there it it should have just ignored it yeah I feel like they've kind of gone the route of accidentally pissing everyone off that really annoyed the shit out of me when I finished season mm. 6 so yeah. I wanted to mention that because that, that really bugged me. So we'll see. We're freaking Yeah, I got halfway through the, the first episode that was very meta in the second half. Oh, yeah. Um, and I haven't proceeded past that. Oh, the previously on. Mm. See, I've, the idea's funny, but don't do a bunch of episodes like that and then at the end of every season pretend like it was a linear, overarching, or serialized story. Don't do that. Mm. Stop it. Because it's starting to... It, it doesn't work. No, you just you just... You become disengaged, you get annoyed, and you don't want to watch it. Well, exactly. I don't... I'm not inclined to watch it. Yeah. Not anymore. Unfortunately, we live in this world where we get... Because there are funny enough episodes in there, by the time season seven rolls around, you may not be in a rush to watch it, but you'll get there eventually. Well, it will come out, and I'll have nothing to watch one day, and then just binge, like, five episodes. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, now I've seen them. Yeah. And I might have the same feelings on them, but... But it's not the same um, eagerness as something like when BoJack hit, where it's like... Oh, God, no. Like, oh, I can't wait for that next season. It, yeah. You almost feel inconvenienced by it. And maybe they may, might even address that level of inconvenience in the, in the seventh season, because that's how... Re- like you said, I, I how reactionary they've gotten to. Right. They, they almost... They they almost release seasons, see the reaction, and then make jokes about that reaction. Yeah. I, I almost don't care what they think of their own reaction anymore. Yeah. Just make the damn show. Stop trying to be smart by commenting on the Reddit threads and stop it. Yeah. I'm actually kind of sick of it now. So. Fair. Anyway, that, that's my surprisingly Christmas a- grumble. angry and Christmas grumble on that. So, Zeke. Yeah. We're in awards season. We are. Now, we're already going quite long, so we don't have to dwell on this too cool. much. But I figured let's go through some of them quickly. Well, f- before we even do that, we've got the National Film Registry updated. Okay. which happens once a year. figured we'd go through some of the films that were added in 2022. Some of the big ones I'm noticing here, there's Attica, Carrie, which I figured is the 1976 version mm-hmm. they're referring to, uh, Hairspray, the 1988 version specifically, uh, The Little Mermaid, 1989. Okay. Very nice. Um, I think the big one here... Oh, there's uh, When Harry Met Sally as well. Made it into the list. Very, very good. The... Other one, there's a bunch in here. You can go look it up for yourself. But the the big one here that I think is really interesting is Iron Man is in mm. here. Now I don't think this is its first year of eligibility. I think that's like a ten year limit, and this film's about fourteen years old. Mm-hmm. But that being said, what do you make of that? Does it does this open up the floodgates for archiving all of the Marvel films? Or? I seriously hope not. Mm. I hope it becomes a. I think Iron Man is a, is a great film by itself. Sure. Um, as is, you know, you could easily throw Raimi's Spider-Man in there. Mm. Or Spider-Man 2. 
yeah for all those people i'm actually so, gonna quickly check we're if so any... inclined that spider-man 2 is better than one um <laughs> um but well they would be eligible if iron man's eligible they would be eligible right um but that i don't know i i, I feel no no other film in the mcu until you get to maybe what Endgame, or if mm. and if that would ever go into a national archive why like yeah well i think that's i mean you know it. why isn't what what is the criteria is it purely quality yeah. i want well, to be fair they do kind of talk about it in terms of its cultural impact uh in which i think that's a big part of what the iron MCU man has sets done the cultural impact though you yeah. don't need another film to be like yeah the cultural impact it's like sure unless you're bookending it like i said you pick like end game yeah you pick end game okay this ended that era of the, the real golden age of the superhero franchise right ended with end game which i think it did i think we are we're past it now yeah like there's all we're going to get is we're going to see more and more diminishing returns. This was a terrible year for the superhero genre. Mm. I mean, collectively, you know, between Love and Thunder, Multiverse of Madness, you know, mm. they went from. I mean, the, ba- the Batman to... was pretty good. Yeah, but that's is, like the, is that even Batman. is that even yeah in the same conversation? You know, that's a detective film mostly. Well, yeah, but I mean that—that's what most of the better superhero films are now, which is migrations of other genres. I mean, you look yeah. at Logan. Um, God, what's the other one? I mean, The Dark Knight to a lesser extent. Yeah, but, but this is one different, though. Like, I don't yeah. think we are we're completely getting rid of superheroes because that would be like getting rid of westerns from sure. the fifties and from the sixties and early seventies. It's or noir films from the forties and fifties. It's this was this was the cultural impact genre of this time. Mm. So for that putting Iron Man in there is totally acceptable for the MCU. But sure. you don't... We don't need to see 25 of them in there. Yeah, yeah. We don't even need to see more than, I think, two in there. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think Iron Man's a nice way to sort of homage. Yeah, if you're yeah. going to talk about cultural impact, sure. But it's kind of like... Not that we've ever overtly had this conversation. Well, we kind of did with the 1100 Films poster when we did Spider-Man No Way Home. Whether that should be in the film, there any Spider-Man films on that poster? I think the 2002 Raimi Spider-Man is on that poster, and only that film. And I think we both agree that sort of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Acknowledge the first one, one of the better ones, and then let it go. Mm-hmm. You know, I think to, te- to tease the film we should be doing next week, I would say a very similar thing about whether that film should be on the poster. Maybe you need the first version of that film to be on the poster, and, and none of its sequels. Spicy little tease now. Where the 80th Golden Globe nominations come out, mm. we'll quickly go through them. So this is the one that Brendan Fraser's boycotting. Yes, okay. yes, he is boycotting this, even though he is up for <laughs> his performance as Charlie in the Whale. Oh, um, I saw the trailer to that. Oof. Oh, the new one. Yeah, yeah, it looks great. It looks really good. It looks like it's gonna hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, for best drama, and what I love about the Globes is they do separate drama and comedy for a lot of these categories. Um, for drama between the between us, we've seen four of the five. You have Avatar: The Way of Water, Elvis, The Fablemans, Tar, and Top Gun: Maverick. Um, so I've seen Top Gun, Elvis, and Avatar. You've seen Elvis, Fablemans, or just yeah, just Elvis and Fablemans. Um, I'm guessing you'll probably put The Fablemans between those two <laughs> for best drama. Ooh, yes. <laughs> In fact, why the hell is Elvis not a musical? 
Yeah. That, that's actually really bizarre. Um, for me, well, between Avatar, Elvis, and Top Gun, I probably would give it to Top Gun just because it is sort of, it feels like a homage to classic action. Yeah. 80s action film, and there, there was a lot of great filmmaking in that with the aerial photography and everything. That being said, um, I think the Fablemans and Tar are probably more in the lead mm. for that category, and I, I cannot wait to see Tar. I hear nothing but good things about it. Over on the musical and comedy aspect, we've got Babylon, The Banshees of Inishirin, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Glass Onion, and Triangle of Sadness. Now, we've both seen Everything Everywhere. Mm-hmm. I've seen Glass Onion. Um, see, that's interesting. You know what I would say? Because the Daniels are up for director as well. I would love to see them win director and then um, Glass Onion win for best comedy. Right. Mm. Although I'm hearing excellent things about really all of these films. I would love... I really want to see The Banshees of Inisherin. I almost went last night, but I ran out of time. I really want to catch that this week. Babylon's around the corner. I have no idea when Triangle of Sadness is coming out. But it will soon enough. Uh, going over to actor quickly, we've got Austin Butler for Elvis, Brendan Fraser for The Whale, Hugh Jackman for The Sun. I don't even know what that is. Uh, Bill Nye for Living, and Jeremy Pope for The Inspection. Again, I haven't even heard. haven't heard of any of these, but I think mm. the Brendan Fraser train is is seriously choo-chooing right now. Yeah. Even if he's... Uh, got a lot of weight be... behind it. Sorry? Yeah. Ha, ha, ha. God damn it, Zeke. That being said, he is boycotting the Globes, and maybe the Globes will be an exception here, and they'll give it to Austin Butler, maybe. Who knows? Who knows what's going on? Over on Actress, we have Kate Blanchett for Tar, Olivia Coleman for Empire of Light. I really want to see that as well. Uh, Viola Davis for The Woman King, Ana de Armes for Blonde, and Michelle Williams for The Fables Men. What do you reckon about Michelle Williams' chance? Great. Great chance. Yeah? Yeah. Sweet. She's... It's tough, because uh, her and Dano are really... They're doing two different things. Mm. Um, and that's why I said, if you want to see The Fablemans and you're a Spielberg fan, you really appreciate that. This is a, a Spielberg um, in unofficial biography. Right. Watch the documentary on him Right, first, so you have that backstory. Um, which is available on, I want to say, Binge. Binge, I think you yeah, said Binge, yeah. I think it's Binge. Um, but, yeah, no. Um, she's great. I haven't even seen Manchester by the Sea. And I don't need to give that a watch <laughs> fair I enough she's really good in that too I can't believe you haven't seen that I know damn wow yeah uh, the only performance I've seen here is Ana de Armas and I mean she's great but the film itself not so much so that might really hinder her chances there um, there's a few nominations here regarding the menu Zeke you've got Ralph Fiennes and Anya Taylor-Joy both nominated for um, performance in a musical and or comedy I could give it to either yeah. I like both nice yeah. Finds is great in it. Mm. It'd probably lean towards him, but it's like your villain is only... Yeah, the protagonist is only as good as the villain, right? Fair so. enough, yeah. Well, some of the other people in this category include Diego Calva for Babylon, which neither of us have seen, Daniel Craig for Glass Onion, which that'd be really fun to see him win that, Adam Driver for White Noise, which I think is playing cinemas now, and Colin Farrell for The Banshees of Inishirin, as well as Leslie Manville, for Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I'm glad they got nominated. Uh, Margot Robbie for Babylon, Emma Thompson for Good Luck to You, Leo Grande, and Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere All at Once. <laughs> I would be pretty happy to see her win, actually. It would be pretty cool. I think I'm going to lean towards her. Um, supporting performance, you got Brendan Gleeson for the... Uh, oh, and uh, Barry Keegan for The Banshees of Inner Sharon, both of them. 
very exciting. Uh, Kihei Kwan for everything, everywhere, all at once. I think that would be fantastic to see him win. Brad Pitt for Babylon. Eddie Redmayne for The Good Nurse. Is, do people like The Good Nurse? It sort of came and went, but I've... I've not seen that. Yeah, one. I don't, I don't know what the goss is on that. I've seen a lot of posts about it. And over on Supporting Actress... Actress, <coughs> actress excuse me. You've got Angela Bassett for Black Panther. For Wakanda Forever, rather. Uh, Kerry Condon for The Banshees of Inishirin. Hell yes! She is excellent in Better Call Saul, and I cannot wait to see her use her Irish accent in this film. Jamie Lee Curtis for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I could also see that being a good pick. Uh, Dolly D. Leon for Triangle of Sadness, and Carrie Mulligan for She Said. I forgot she was in that. Mm. I don't think anyone saw it, though. No. <laughs> All right, and we'll blast for these last ones. Best Director. you got James Cameron for Avatar, The Dans for Everything, Everywhere, Baz Luhrmann for Elvis, Mark McDonough for The Banshees of Inishirin, and Steven Spielberg for The Fablemans. I am obviously going to lean towards the Dans here. What about you, Zeke? Is it between them and Spielberg? Probably. Yeah, yeah. I'd say so. James Cameron's just, not going to get his ego stroke. I hope not. At the Globes. <laughs> I just think uh, she said's currently playing in a cinemas right now. Yeah, so, no, it's it's still yeah. playing. I was, I don't I don't think anyone saw that. Not a living soul. Yeah. <laughs> Going off on the, the bombshell the first discussion. One to watch it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I saw. <laughs> You're she know, like, can I get one ticket to she said? And it was like, what? It's Maria Schrader. I, w- I wonder if that's um. I'm just trying to who work out who that is. If that's oh, okay. Where there's an affiliation with Paul Schrader. Oh, potentially. Never know. Uh, best screenplay. We got Todd Field for Tar, The Dans for Everything Everywhere, Martin McDonough for The Banshees of Inishir, and Sarah Polly for Women Talking. I know this has been a big one. People saying that, uh, there, again, there are no women directors in Best Director, and, and Sarah Polly was snubbed. I haven't seen this film, mm. so I can't comment on that. Um, and then you got Tony Kushner and Steven Spielberg for The Fablemans. Is that the best script you've seen all year? Oh, it's good to see Kushner and Spielberg mm. teaming up. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, it'd be up there for sure. Okay, I think there is a good solid script. Mm. I'd say the script is probably it's honestly one of. Oh, is that my favorite part of the film? Yeah, maybe. I'd say, I'd say so. It's a pretty strong script. Okay, yeah, it's a really nice script actually. Yeah, yeah. I want I want to watch more of these before I select the Dan's because that's actually the only film I've seen from this category. Um. I'm more than happy for them to win director and, and yeah. give the screenplay award to someone else. I'm more than happy to see that. Best original score, we got The Banshees of Inner Sheeran, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Women Talking, Babylon, and The Failed Ones. Uh, the Pinocchio score is fantastic. Mm. Um, I don't know how much notice you took to John Williams' score in The Fablemans. I mean, it's John Williams. I'm sure it's yeah. good. It's good. <laughs> it's good. I think it was overwhelmingly um, intrusive. Sure. Um, so I didn't pay too much attention to right, it. Right, kind yeah, of subtle. It was enveloped the in the story. Fair enough. We've got Best Original Song. we got uh, Carolina. Carolina from Taylor Swift for Where the Crawl Dads Sing. we got Chow Papa for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Hold My Hand for Top Gun Maverick. I don't want that to win. Uh, Lift Me Up for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And Natu Natu for Triple R. I'm shocked this is the first time we've seen Triple R in here because I've heard nothing but excellent things mm. about that film. It's also in the best non-English language film, along with um, like Argentina. Close, I've heard, is good. Decision to Leave from South Korea, of course, and All Quiet on the Western Front, which that might actually be the winner just because it's the Netflix film. Oh, no, Triple R's on Netflix as well, but it's also not based on a you know a 1930s classic. 
So we'll see there. Mm. Um, in terms of Son, I can't say. I, I don't want the Lady Gaga Son to win. I don't particularly like it very much. Um, and over on Best Animated Feature, we've got Guillermo de Toro's Pinocchio, Inu O, uh, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. I've heard that's great. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, and Turning Red. It's got to be Pinocchio. You'd be out of your mind picking yeah. anything out of And I like Turning Red quite a bit. I said this. I think it's the most personal Pixar film ever to be released in yeah. terms of the director's voice shining through but the animation Pinocchio is just next level absolutely phenomenal yeah, I would I would lean probably towards I haven't even seen it yet but I've right. seen trailers and I'm like Whoo. right yeah oh no it's, it's a gorgeous looking film just the effort alone you've got to love the stop motion now I'm looking at the 28th Critics Choice Awards um I would love to pay more attention to these. We've already gone pretty long, but mm. a lot of these categories are very similar. There are way more directors in Best Director and way more Best Picture noms. So looking at Best Picture, uh, we got Avatar The Way of Water, Babylon, Banshees of Inisherin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Glass, Onion, Knives Out, Mystery, Triple uh, R. So there you go. Triple R is getting a lot more rep mm. at the Critics' Choice. Uh, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, and Women Talking. So, very similar list with a couple of nice throw-ins in there. Um, I like to see Triple R and Women Talking, and that's cool. Over on Best Director, again, very similar. Well, you got Sarah Polly. She was not snubbed in this case. you got Gina Price by the wood for The Woman King. Uh, SS Raja Muli for Triple R. So, a bit more of a spread there, mm. which is exciting. Um, let's see. I'm just trying to... Oh, uh... No, Margot Robbie's in there as well. Yeah, pretty much a similar list in terms of the acting categories. Um, there's some nominations for films like Causeway in here. Uh, Jessie Buckley for Women Talking. She was not up on the other list, I don't think. Ooh, Janelle uh, Mon- Monat, is that her mm. name, from Glass Onion? Yes, she is fantastic in that film, so I'm glad to see that in there. Uh, best Acting Ensemble, Banshees of Inisherin, Everything Everywhere, The Fablemans, Glass Onion, Woman Talking. Oh, sorry, The Women, the Woman King and Women Talking. <laughs> They're back-to-back. Just um, to make it extra confusing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Would you say The Fablemans has a good ensemble? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a tough category of ensembles, mm. though. Just you go through them. Yeah, so. I mean, I might even lean towards Glass Onion. I mean, Everything Everywhere has a great ensemble, but... It, it kind of feels like there's a couple of standout performances. Well, yeah. Glass Onion kind of feels like a more flat hierarchy of just great performances all around. Yeah, so that, I would probably agree with that. Yeah, that's kind of my Can't thinking. Can't wait to watch there. it in the next week. Um, your boy got nominated for Best Young Actor in The Fablemans. Gabrielle LaBelle. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. As well as uh, Banks Re- uh, Rapita. Banks Rapita from uh, Armageddon Time. Which I'm excited about. Sadie Sink for The Whale. I guess that was not too surprising. So there's a few performances in here. Yeah, she's um, uh, she's going to be the one that breaks away, I reckon. <laughs> Out of that Stranger Things cast. Yeah, that's true. Just like her general popularity. That's fair enough. She didn't even get the Emmy nom, which I was kind of frankly glad about. But th- this is a nomination for The Whale. I'm, get- I'm sure she has much more to do in The Whale. So it's yeah, more well I think it comes back to, uh, I think, with everything that happened in the last couple of years, you know, when you have such a when you have a child cast, you're like, oh, which one of you is going to be the the real breakout here? Mm, like, yeah, whose career is kind of dying on this <laughs> this child acting hill? And, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely that last that last 
half se- which is a season it's a season it's all it? season f- what of Stranger Things yeah that's season 4 is it yeah that's a, the full season season 4 um, that was all that was her season wasn't it really I guess but like I also sit down and wonder like what did she really like actually do in that season other than almost die a few times and that might be a really spicy take I'm sorry about that <laughs> I guess the she's, season around she's fantastic, to, do with, but... to do with grief I guess, and it's her dealing. Yeah, with like there, there's those emotions, and then she has the monologue to the gravestone. I get those moments are in there, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just standing for Racy no. on a bit more. She also got snubbed at the Golden Globes, so what do I care anymore? <laughs> Who cares? Everyone knows the real champion of the universe. It's Racy Horn, apparently. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, yeah, and uh, this list looks pretty similar all around. Um, yeah, best visual effects. I'm interested about this because you got. Everything, everywhere, all at once, and Avatar: The Way of Water in the same category. There, mm. that's going to be fascinating to see which way they lean between like the big CGI spectacle or like the the five person team that you know did up several miracles. Oh, they'll they'll lean the money way, won't they? <laughs> well, we'll see. You know, you never. I mean, this is the Critics' Choice Awards, so okay. they're a bit more unpredictable in that sense. Where they they might go for the artistry over the the financial side of things. Uh, if it was the Globes. Yeah. I think it would be much more obvious. Here comes the money. <laughs> mind on my money. Money on my mind. All right. Let's call it there for awards discussion. That was a lot to take in mm. in just a week, but I'm excited we had it. Now, Zeke. Yeah. Before we move on. Okay. You signed <laughs> I told you this is going to be an insane episode. <laughs> be a crazy episode. We have gifts for each other. We do. Is now a good time to open them? I think it's a great time. Oh, excellent. All right. Speaking of awards season, I got my graduation certificate. Oh, uh, yeah. what? Right. Just then? No. But okay. That was my But that that is the award show. Yeah. Yeah, that was the final award. <laughs> um all right, so do we do this at the same time? Uh no, but let's go one by one. Okay. Yeah, Would you like me to go first? Sure, if you want. Okay. Let's go first. I want you to appreciate my rapping. This is really good. You it's, rap this. I'm getting better at it. This I is am. like That's actually one of my I mean it was not hard to rap. <laughs> based on the shape. But it's very satisfying. Oh, I'm glad. Like so I'm not trying to destroy the mic. Kirsty's like that. She hates like ripping paper open. No, but like it's because of the mics. It's I'm, cute. I'm, I'm respecting oh, the, the mics. Right, 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 right. Otherwise, I would go crazy. Even without mics, Kirsty's very delicate with her rapping really? opening. Yeah, yeah. Oh, which oh. I appreciate. It's a record. Oh, of a kind. It's a record. Oh, it's not the front. There you go. Oh. It's the new Felix Rebel, who's the lead singer of Cat Empire. There you go. Who Jake took a photo. It's his new album. Uh, I've got a photo of you two together. So it's his we brand do. new album. I think they only put out an LP for it. Or, sorry, of a, a vinyl. Really? I guess uh, yeah, because I couldn't find a CD How anywhere musical for it. musical hipster... Well, I'm a vinyl man, anyway. I know. I, I Yes, I was, I was more than happy to buy it I'm for assuming you. his child has scribbled on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's his signature, Zeke. <laughs> Everyone should look up the cover. I think it's called Every Day Amen. Yes. I think that's what it's called. So It's very exciting. Yeah, I've never owned no, one of that or Harry. Thank you, Jake. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. Um, yeah, they're both doing their own thing. I mean, they've been doing their own thing for a long while, but now that Harry's left the Cannon Empire, it's a little more sad. Yeah. But I'm sure... Still on the fence about going to that show in, in April. Maybe this will be the convincing... Ooh, maybe. Just maybe. Um, I didn't realize how many of the same songs they're going to play again, just without Harry and, and Co. Yeah, they're saying they're going to play all the so, Cat Empire classics. Like apparently, so. they did in my pocket. Really? Which is fascinating, yeah. Wow. So, gonna... we'll see. We'll... Well, I, I, you know, 
not to drag this out on the show too long. But sure. It's like, you know, there's a conversation to be had if we go to the Fremantle Prison Show in April. Mm. Um, it's still on the table. So, you know. There you go. Um, Got a decision to make. Yeah. Tickets are still available. So, That's thank you, right. Jake. No, you're very welcome. Oh, I saw that and I thought that was perfect for I you. I think that is a fantastic present. Oh, excellent. All right, let's open mine up. I'm going to do the opposite music. <laughs> ASMR. It's very satisfying. I'm going to just do that. Oh, what on earth? I, so see, what it, I see Netflix. He sees <laughs> Netflix. Giant letters. <laughs> but it's a big box <laughs> oh of Netflix. Goodness. Oh. A Netflix original party game. Three to ten players, ages 14 and up. 14 oh, and up. Is, I've good never you're... seen this before. This is fascinating. So oh, it's, it's a, Oh, okay. So it's a pitch show where you pitch like the funniest Netflix show pairing. Oh, that's clever. So it's a take on Cards Against Humanity. Yeah, yeah. But with Netflix shows and, like, funny prompts. This must be official branding, because they're just going all out with it. It is their official game. Okay, good, because I was like, they're going to get sued up the wazoo. There's no hiding these logos. This is fantastic. No, this is a a pure Netflix game, and I know you've got a collection of, of... film and TV related board yeah. games. Well, they're in my room. A lot of my game yeah. movie board games. But so no, I've, I've never even heard of this before, so this is fantastic. Yeah. So it's... Excellent. Drama. Um, Block any players recode this round. They can't win this round. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess you up, Zeke. Yeah. Oh, so. and you, you got Bridgerton, Stranger Things, The Social Dilemma, so the, all the all the shows are on there. Yeah. All the branding's all attached. The Netflix That's fantastic. There you go. Oh, excellent. Thank you very much. we got to play this together. Yes. yes. There you go. We need next, a third player, though. Next games night. We'll get, a, excellent. We'll get all the filmies around. Get them Get them in on it. I like the sound pitching of that. The, pitching shows. Oh, Nothing excellent. a couple of drinks and a board game won't fix. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, Christmas presents aside, it is time for us to move into our film of the week and latest director's corner. But, Jake, who's the director and what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke. Oh, no. Don't drop it. <laughs> this week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Home Alone. That was my phone. Police in the northern suburbs are on the lookout for a pair of burglars who are calling themselves the Wet Bandits. We know that you're in there. It's Santa Claus. And it's Elf. Get off my property. This is my house. I have to defend it. Where's your mother? My mom's in the car. Where's your father? He's at work. What about your brothers and sisters? I'm an only child. Where do you live? Can't tell you that. Why not? Because you're a stranger. He's a kid. I mean, what can a kid do to us? Kids are stupid. I know I was. You still are, Marv. This is it. Ow! I don't care if I have to get out on your runway and hitchhike. I am going to get home to my son. Take your shoes off. Why are you dressed like a chicken? Gus Polinski, Polka King of the Midwest. If you have to get to Chicago, we'll gladly drive you. Hey, guys. Yesterday, he was just a kid. But tonight, he's a home security system. You guys give up or you're thirsty for more? From John Hughes. You know, I got a feeling this is going to be your best Christmas ever. A family comedy without the family. Home alone. Are you here all alone? I'm eight years old. You think I'd be here alone? 
I don't think so. Directed by Chris Columbus. Eight-year-old Kevin McAllister makes the most of the situation after his family unwittingly leaves him behind when they go on a Christmas vacation. But when the pair, when a pair of bungling burglars set their sights on Kevin's house, the plucky kid stands ready to defend his territory. <laughs> Pregnant pause. It's very intense. I think it's I like rattled... furnace in the basement. Yeah. No, I rattled through like seven jokes in my mind. I couldn't land on one, so I just stared at you. Okay. In this, in this audio media. Kevin has bad parents. The movie. Am I a bad mother's sake? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so as you said uh, last week, this being a Chris Columbus uh, corner, yes. director's corner, um, this is only his second feature film build on Letterbox. Yeah, well, he did um, Heartbreak Hotel in, I think, 88? 88. And then he did this after, which kind of blew me away because this, this is probably, outside of Harry Potter, his most famous movie he's ever done. And like you said, it's yeah, like got I mean, this worldwide appeal to it as a Christmas movie. I'd say Pixels is pretty. Uh, Pixels is pretty. Uh, <laughs> Pixels, Pixels, Pixels is, is pretty uh, well known. If you're talking about well known, um, Mrs. Doubtfire is pretty well known, I guess. Yeah, true. But like Home Alone, it's a. I think as virtue of it being a Christmas film and, and like a beloved one at that, it's like it's played every year. Mrs. Sure. Doubtfire isn't played every year on TV. Yeah. So I think there is that element to it. And then Harry Potter is being shared amongst so many other people. I mean, it's author, but then other directors, of course, the cast, including Daniel Radcliffe. There's a lot of love to share in terms of the making of the Harry Potter films, as much as I think Chris Columbus is a very underappreciated core element of those early films and the the tone and the aesthetic of all the Harry Potter films. But you're right. This was shockingly early in his career, at least his direct his directing career for feature mm. films. But what when I started rewatching this film last night and the f- the name popped up and I was like, oh, I completely forgot. It's a John Hughes film. I was yes. like, that makes a lot of sense, especially in regards to you know his earlier work with Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. There's so many nods to Ferris Bueller in this film, I feel like. Um, we can get into that. But I think that makes, makes a lot more context for mm. how frankly i think good this film is i mean the script is really excellent and we can get into why but chris columbus was actually offered this role after quitting on national lampoon's christmas vacation because he was having personal conflicts with chevy Ch- chevy chase hmm. so I, I thought that was interesting I like, to no one yeah <laughs> so sort of in in that um i guess that little time period right there where um you know the the paths were crossed so to mm. speak, and he got the chance to direct this film, um, which again, I feel the John Hughes name is probably more important than Chris Columbus's name in regards to this film. But nevertheless, watching Home Alone, I was like, I really want to pay attention, pay attention to his filmmaking, and like see how much it really shines through. Because would you agree with me, Zeke? You're looking at his films, Home Alone and its sequel, Mrs. Doubtfire, films like that. Would you agree that he generally just kind of lets the lead actor kind of carry the film? Yeah, I'd say so. To quickly mm. uh, retcon, this is actually his third feature film. Oh, was uh, it really? Adventures in Babysitting came out in 1987. Um, was oh, his did first it really? Film, and Heartbreak Hotel was his second. This was his third. Oh, you're right. Mm. Damn, how did I miss quick, that? Quick retcon, that's okay. But, um, yeah. Nevertheless, would... still very early in his career. Yeah, still very early. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, look, I, I would say that's definitely a, a prominent feature. I mean, looking, just even visiting, looking, reviewing all of his films, um, definitely uh, the ones I've seen, he, he lets his lead or leads carry the, the narrative. I, I think his two Harry Potter films are very... They, they are just all Harry. And... Okay. Well, I think they're titch... I mean, they're definitely... The two, okay, actually, I'm going to redact that and say that they're prominently the, the three. They're Ron, Hermione, and, and right, Harry yeah. films. But um, particularly, like, the second one is when we really start to see the, 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 that sort of three-prong um, cast. And that actually fades away in the later films. Right. It does definitely become more a Harry-centred uh, narrative. Mm. Um, and, you know, looking at, at, at this film where it, it's all shot from Kevin's perspective. It's, mm. you know, with, with the cutaways to the mum, I guess, but it's all centred around Kevin's story. And, you know, though I haven't seen Bicentennial Man, I know that mm. centres around Robin Williams' character. Mrs. Doubtfire, I've only ever seen half of Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, okay. Um, and I know that that's a, you know, it's in the name. Follows. Yeah. Uh, and definitely leans heavily on the abilities of the actor yeah i guess sure. i guess that's what i'm really thinking of is is the appeal of the movies and the appeal of mrs doubtfire is is robin williams doing comedy and the appeal of home alone is i mean there is you know there is the widest story in the narrative and we, we but we love the burglars and we and we love the the McAllister family i feel like there's some great filmmaking in here but i feel like it's not like when you see a steven spielberg film you're seeing a mm. steven spielberg film now this chris columbus kind of even looking at his filmography, I half the time I just forget that he worked on like the Percy Jackson movie and Pixels. But Pixels is another great example. Of like, well, that that's an Adam Sandler film. Mm. That's not a Chris Columbus film. Obviously, there's those those extra visual effects and video game nods. So it's like, I guess that's the difference between other Adam Sandler films and that one in particular. But the yeah, great I, Pixels. Yeah, yeah, but like, <laughs> and then with Harry Potter, I think. I think it's a Harry Potter because it's like an adaption of a novel and that there's so much... you got to get the tone right there where it is sort of whimsical and, and awe-inspiring and like the production design of the castle and sort of... I mean, a lot of it is sort of translated in the book, but mm. I just... I think Chris... That's the film where Chris Columbus's style really shines because it had to. It had to. It was essential to the Harry Potter series. I mean, obviously, he's casting... I mean, that, that's the other thing. We talk about Robin Williams and Macaulay Culkin and, and Daniel Radcliffe. It's like, but he would have been huge role in casting those films. Mm. So that's also him as well. But I think if we focus it on Home Alone for now. Sure. Um, well, I've got to ask, Zeke, do you remember the first time you were left Home Alone as a child? No, I don't. <laughs> do you? Kind of, I do. I'm a, I think I must have been five years old. But I remember that, like, waking up, it must have been a weekend, or something was going on, and no one was home. Just an empty house. And I just didn't understand, not that I didn't understand the concept, but I couldn't fathom the idea of waking up and no one's home, and there's mm. no explanation for it. And I was, I think I cried. <laughs> I think I was upset. Oh. I, I mean, you know, yeah, I think that's very fair. I think it's it's interesting when you're not there for a period of time or people aren't there for a period of time and you are left alone. It, it doesn't happen often in my house. Right. Um, oh, it doesn't happen often in this house either, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> so it's always an odd feeling when you're alone in a place by yourself. 
Um, yeah, but but as a child and for it to be like unprepared for sure. Um, I just I remember that, and, and almost in contrast to that, this feels like I mean Kevin McAllister is a little older than I was at that time, but this almost feels like a bit of a child power fantasy, mm. if you will. The idea of oh this kid's left home alone and there's no parents to stop him from eating junk food and watching bad movies. Yeah, I mean it's quite funny aspect. because uh, like I said in the first half of the show, I hadn't seen this film for the first time until I was, like, 20, 21. Right. Um, which doesn't mean it's a disjointed narrative. I can still watch it, follow it, and relate to it to an sure. extent. But of course. I had seen the when the parents leave children to play narrative. First time I saw that was an episode of Round the Twist. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> it's an Australian-based show on the Paul Jennings novels, I think mm. it is. Um and or short stories and there's an episode where they read from a book and all the parents of the the town uh become vikings and they leave they migrate oh, away okay. and the whole town is ruled by children and obviously it's that whole uh, the the arc's very similar it's mm. oh we're, i'm by myself i'm self-sufficient i'm sustainable and at the core I really just miss my family because of the company and the, the memories and the emotional side. Sure. Um, not because... And, yeah, they gain end- independence, but they also gain self-awareness. Mm. Um, so Kevin undergoes the exact same narrative here. Yeah, there's de- definitely a, a character arc of him sort of maturing and being forced to grow up. But you're right, and then but understanding that there is a downside to independence and that it can be lonely, for, especially for Christmas and... Mm-hmm. Um, but that I feel like that arc is so neatly tied around this idea of the chaotic or the, the chaos that ensues around Christmas because it was something that I actually was seeing reinforced over and over again in this film it's not just the McAllister family that's you know running around like several you know headless chickens mm. um, at the start of the film the fact that there's like a, you know a police authority and a pizza boy waiting for his money that nothing they can do can stop the the rowdiness and chaos that is that yeah. the family but then that extends to airports and the travel and the fact that it's just so busy at christmas and especially now it's relatable to just how expensive flights are and how hard it is to get a last minute flight because there is so much chaos around Christmas and the bureaucracy of when she's calling the police and it's just like, oh, there's a kid at home. It's not important enough for us to mm. to you know send an officer out. It's like there's there's this chaos surrounded in every aspect of this film. Even even um, Marv is like overly messy yeah. when he's robbing things and breaking stuff and and I I think that's sort of the core of the film is is seeing through all that BS for lack of a better word. And, and getting back to the simplicity of the Christmas spirit and family. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the ultimate thing that that arc wraps around, the ultimate theme for this film. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And it's a weird one, isn't it? Because it also talks about that whole notion for uh, going on a holiday around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. I think it challenges that notion with the, you know, especially with the final shots as Kevin's mum's walking around the room and is sort of gaining a soft, uh, quiet appreciation for the serenity and the, and the real beauty of, of putting up all the decorations. They, mm. they left all these decorations for Christmas to go to Paris, a place that isn't home to them. Right. Um, and they're almost um, indirectly punished for that, um, you know, as per the narrative. And I think right. the script is at least trying to show that these, you know, and 
especially when you've got these two, the wet bandits robbing these houses for mm. people that have gone away for Christmas. Yeah. Buying into that commercial idea of, oh, we've got to be traveling. We've got to be doing something extraordinary for Christmas from what Christmas is about. Right, yeah. The extraordinary nature is, is being at home with the family because work stops, everything stops. Mm. And the constant frantic notion of the McAllisters, the family, yeah. like the fact that the by some events, the power goes out, they run late for the bus, they can never find a moment of pure tranquility until Kevin's mum walks through the door. Right. Well, until, yeah, the very end of the movie. The only person who exactly. finds that peace beforehand is Kevin. Right. <laughs> when he goes to church. And... Oh, so that's a brilliant scene. So yeah, it's... Such a brilliant scene. It's interesting how frantic the McAllisters are. Mm, and, yeah. Well, I've, I've almost every character in the whole film is frantic, like you said. That that chaos extends to, yeah. to you know, the local town and the people at the airport and the police station and, and the, the wet bandits and and all of that and you're right the film kind of slows down when you go into the church and it is sort of quiet and pristine and bang on the midpoint it's yeah like the perfect midpoint well it's um, it's it's beautiful because one of the other things the film establishes is old, is old man murphy hmm. i believe his name is where he's sort of this not a fret but he's just sort of this looming figure that the kids have made rumors about and He's always scaring Kevin inadvertently, and he does have a creepy stare. In all fairness, but the film also, yeah, <laughs> the film also goes out of its way on, at times to, like you said, for, because it's from the point of view of Kevin, who's what eight years old. It sort of does exacerbate some of the things that he's mm. fearing, which not only includes him, but like the radiator in the basement, the fact that it lights up and opens up and makes this big noise. Which- it's like, well, yeah. that, that's the imagination of a child. So what's old man Murphy really look like? Exactly. Is he really staring at him for 60 seconds while he slowly yeah. backs out of the convenience store? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, and you're 100% right. I mean, this kid is, what, eight? Yeah, I think so. Um, And we, it's pure child perspective mm. Um, in in almost every aspect of it. The only times is when we get the the maternal worrying of, in which her arc is basically just, am I a bad mum? It's kind of a non-event. It's it's a bit of a... Well, it's all about, I guess, the desperation to get back home and the amount of, like, begging she's doing and going from stop to stop. And and she's abandoned this vacation and literally the rest of her family to go and, and find the one child because of that guilt. Mm. that she feels and, and she probably remembers the last conversation they had at that point which was basically them just wishing to well particularly him wishing never, never see his family again um, her saying I don't want to see you for the rest of the night but I, I think that I think the physical journey and then the fact she's in, she's in the van with all the musicians <laughs> which includes uh, John Candy who sadly passed away only like a few years after this film was made mm. um, but he was quite fun he's like trying to you know, you heard of us? I mean, surely you've heard of us. We had some records. We had some hits. We got polka. Six, six, yeah, polka. We six hundred hits, <laughs> <laughs> which is great stuff. But yeah, I think, and going back to this idea of of sort of Kevin's imagination and how that sort of informs the rest of the film, you have that. But then you even have the cut, and this this goes into something clever. I don't know if it was Chris from a directing standpoint, mm. or it was in the script, or it was in the edit, but. And this happens a couple of times. Not only the scene when, you know, Kevin 
realizes he's home alone and you kind of calls out for his mum and then almost like telepathically it cuts to the plane where she almost hears it and it's sort of just implementing that there's that spirituality there but then even earlier than that when he makes that wish of I don't want to see my family again we have this long scene outside at night and the wind is like kind of building up and that's a full-on scene it very easily could have just been cut to a shot bang powers out cut to next morning they kind of build that scene up. As yeah, as this and there's, a, there, there's a, yeah, and I would argue that that helps the film get away from its sort of contrivances, like the head mm. count being messed up. And oh, sure, yeah. Like the oh, well, the telephone lines are going to be out in the next couple of days. Wink, wink. Something's about to happen. Like there are a lot of in the space of about five minutes. There's a lot of these are basically the rules as to why. This doesn't yeah. find resolution. They spend the first 20 what? minutes being like, here are all the things that have to happen for this whole film scenario to occur. It's interesting. Which is fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's fine. Um, because obviously, like I said, they really do, like I said, the frantic rush doesn't stop. Mm. Um, I always, I am, uh, even on the second watch, I do groan a little bit that the whole family gets home for Christmas um, okay. at the end, simply because, and it's as simple as, oh, well, we just waited for the flight that you should have waited for in the first place. Um, yeah, that, that's a funny line. <laughs> and it's like... She gets there 10 seconds before they do. <laughs> yeah. And I sort of sit there and go, could you write that? Because the arc needs to be not just for her to find value in Kevin, but everyone in the family to sure. find. It's not just about the mum. The mum, yeah, sure, is the last... Kate's the last one to see Kevin. Mm. And you could easily, you know, you have to center it around, oh, well, you know, her arc needs to be, she needs to find appreciation. Mm. But they kind of all do, because at first, it's very hard to make out who Kevin's siblings actually are. Right. Because right? of the, the absolute chaos of the house I, party. I think it's almost intentional that a lot of them don't really have many personalities. Like, you've got, um, is it Buzz? Buzz is the eldest. Yeah. He's just got, a teenager. He's kind of the closest you get to, like, being able to separate all the McAllisters from this this big cluddle of people who are there purely just to make fun of and insult Kevin to sort of gang up on him. Yeah. So I, I feel like the capability of them collectively being like, we got to go home to Kevin is there. But I'm also wondering... I feel like there needs to be a... There's a scene missing there, though. Where could the parents sort of go, like, introduce the value there. Because the kids don't value Kevin, and they're still kids. Um, so like, yeah. why wouldn't they be like, oh, well, what do we have to do? Why do we all have to go back? For, look, they've just been on an eight hour flight <laughs> over to, yeah. To well, pa- well, there's the scene where they're in the, the French hotel and yeah. I think it's Buzz and Megan that are sort of having this argument where Buzz is like, oh, well, yeah. you know, it serves him right. He should, you know, spend a day, spend a few days out in the real world. Yeah. And she's the one like, you're not worried about him even a little bit. Like, I mean, there's that family aspect there yeah. where it's all he needs is time. I think all they need is time to be like, yeah, we're really worried about this situation. We do love him. He's still yeah. our sibling and he's still part of this family. I, I get what you mean with the, they just come in at the end and be like, oh, we just caught that flight. Like it kind of, it's a funny line. It almost would be does nice. does it negate her arc at all? I think it does. Okay. Because I think if they come home Boxing Day, hmm. even, and they get today, they spend a day together, his mum and him, get that quality time that, Kevin's desperately craving from the first interaction while Kate's on the phone. Kevin wants attention. Mm. Kevin's not getting attention. 
And then the funny thing is, they all go, oh, it's great to see you, Kevin. And yeah. then they fall back into the dining room, and Kevin's right. left alone again. Hmm. It's an interesting way to end off, in my opinion, because it's like, she, you know, like, you would think it's, it's if you're making her go on this big journey, hmm. why isn't it just her coming home for Christmas? Because she's going above and beyond, whereas the I, dad is just like, well, I mean, he's still doing the right thing being a dad. He's looking yeah. after the other four well, kids exactly yeah well um, there's like there's like 10 plus of them at this yeah. point with the yeah. uncle as well, well the uncle sucks. i think look, the I, the worst. <laughs> look what you did you little jerk that's a great line yeah. <laughs> i think look i get what you're saying i think the way i guess they approached it is they have the one moment together all they all i guess all they feel like they needed was that one moment where they hug it's just the two of them mm. Um, as opposed to, okay, well, let's establish that it's been two days and then the family get back. I think it kind of just works as like a satisfying end of Christmas film. Let's tie everything up as quickly yeah. as possible. Just, they just come five seconds later. Sure. So I understand the logic, but I get what you mean as well. But yeah. It could even be it, Christmas Eve. Like, they, like you switch the timeline a little bit. Right. So they leave on the 22nd or the 21st, mm. and then Christmas Eve is what he spends with his mum. Right. And then they have that conversation about, like, I don't know. I'm just saying that it's like she goes on this massive, crazy journey. Yeah. And then they just catch that flight. It just... I do agree. It's a Christmas... But this comes back to this conversation. Are we sometimes just lighter on Christmas films because they're Christmas films? Are we less uh, sceptical? Well, I don't even know if it's about being sceptical about it. I think it does make it more clearly about that family uniting. And I think you do need that because at the end of the day, that's what it, it's, it should be about the family mm. reuniting, remembering like, it. you know, they're not in France for Christmas Day. Yeah. They're at home, but that's that's all that really matters. So I guess you got that aspect. I, at the end of the day, I just think it's purely from a writing standpoint. It just, it, it, let's simplify it. The, um, this is what I'm saying, like John mm. Hughes and that, we're probably sitting down thinking, let's simplify it and give them just a moment. Maybe that's all the mother needs. And maybe they needed to make that more obvious. Yeah. Is that is that, you know, Kate is content with just that one moment with Kevin, that just the two of them, that they're both content with that. Um, Even if Kate gets him a present or something, like something that mm, little bit more special, right, I think. Right, And I get, oh, the okay. gift is that all the family's home for Christmas. But that little explicit thing, like okay. something from the journey that she right. went on. Oh, that yeah, that could have been token. clever if, if there was some sort of um, uh, like Finding Nemo, you know, where they, they have mm. the conversation about um, turtles, how long they live, mm. and then through Mar- Marlon's journey, at the end of the film, he can tell Nemo about the turtle he met, and mm. he actually lives to 150, and or he's 150 years old, and something like that. Maybe yeah. you're right. Would have like, been a nice attitude to really show that it's like that above and beyond that she cares beyond that and. I think that it's, you know, and obviously they're very realistic in that scenario, in that mm. that storybook sense that it's like, well, I need to get on this flight as quick as possible. If I get on it, you have to look after the kids. And obviously the, the parents are both on the same page about that. Right. It would be really interesting. And like you said, there is that small interaction between the children where it's like you've got to care a little bit. But maybe if the children, their arc was, they're the ones that really push for the parents to go after and get Kevin, like right. find a way. Um, or help find a way so at least Kate starts her journey off with like mm. the kids consent um, as to abandoning this holiday yeah um, it is very interesting 
Yeah, um, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I guess there's... I feel like there'd be a lot more whinging about <laughs> being on an eight-hour plane and then getting over there and realising your kid's gone. But to be honest, they're in first class. So there's like those little things. Like There's a lot the of kids. subtle hints that they're all very, very, very well off. I mean, look at the size of that house. It's insane. <laughs> first class plane. I honestly thought for a, a period of time, because of the lack of likelihood, like mm. likeness in any of the siblings, I was like, is this a foster home? Is this a foster family? Always... Well, they establish a lot of them are cousins and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, so there's there's that aspect to it. It does even feel a little his, cheaper his, by the dozen S, Yeah, even it? his direct siblings, like, they seem to have next to no resemblance to him. They're just a lot of child actors. Oh, well, Kieran Culkin's in there with his cute little glasses. Yeah. So that that's that's cute. <laughs> there was another McCulkin in the film. I think oh. it was Girl at Airport, though. Mm. I don't think it's one of the McAllisters. Okay. I, I didn't, like check to confirm that but i yeah. i did notice and i get that. it it's chaotic and and all that and you know we haven't even talked about our our wet bandits performances no so we can talk about our wet bandits you mentioned daniel stern earlier of course joe pesci and, and it has to be said the casting is just phenomenal with this is the same year goodfellas came out like come on it doesn't get any so better than weird. that <laughs> but I think I obviously think they're both great in it. What I love, and this is, it's almost a little subtle hint at the start of the film, when Joe Pesci is obviously pretending to be the cop. He's trying to sort of, he's going from house to house to extract information about the security system and what they can get away with and mm. who they can rob from. But I love when one of the kids throws a duffel bag down the stairs and it just lands on his feet. But then the camera pulls up and he's fine. He's this authority figure. He looks up. He's not. He there's no pain. Mm. There's no nothing. And I love that. It's like that's almost the exact reverse opposite, quoting Jesse Pinkman there, of the slapstick comedy that comes later, where virtually anything and everything that touches him is incredibly dangerous and almost lethal. Mm. <laughs> He's slipping down the stairs and getting a blowtorch to the head and all of that. And it's like it's such a juxta- juxtaposed little moment where the duffel bag has no harm on him whatsoever. Yeah. I just love that little touch. But what what do you think of the wet bandits and their dynamic? Oh, they're great. Yeah, great. I mean, it, it's like you said, it's so weird to see Goodfellas dropping the same year as this film. It's yeah. like you, you. I mean, Pesci's basically playing the PG version of him. Yeah, of, 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 of his Goodfellas of character. His Goodfellas character. <laughs> um, it's an interesting one because it, obviously it's a very cat and it's a cat and mouse film. Um, so and the second half of the film, post church scene, sure is just a collection of slapstick set them up knock them down comedy yeah it's almost like yeah, there's your big explosive it, third it, act ironically the 25 minute fight scene it's the 25 minute <laughs> fight scene isn't it it's just an elongated <laughs> battle period except instead of thousands of CGI monsters it's just a kid with two guys who are conveniently stepping into every yeah yeah um trap <laughs> It's the mouse hunt humor, isn't it? Oh, oh my god, we're gonna do mouse hunt on this show. Yeah, no, what a phenomenal mouse film! Mouse hunt's great. <laughs> I think mouse hunt because it's an elongated battle, and it's like the whole film exactly it ends up being what the third act is. I reckon funnier, but it's it's very entertaining. It's interesting that this film. It's would this film work at a different time of year? Does how is. A different time of year? Yeah. Like or just a, different or time period in general? Both. Yeah, let's go both. Because I, I actually did write this. I was going to pose this question to you, Zeke, is how do you make a Home Alone adaptation in different time periods? And and yeah, so let's like, say... So, like, say different... for 2022, the Home Alone 
remake. Yeah, exactly. Well, what I did, Zeke... Something to do with Alexa. Oh, well, yeah, we're going to talk about Alexa. I quickly skimmed through the 2021 Home Alone starring... I think it's Archie Yates. Oh, yeah, there was one that came the, out. Yeah, just a year ago. Um, Ellie Kemper from The Office, I believe that's her name. She's uh, one of the burglars in that. Um, I skimmed through it, Zeke. Because I wanted to answer this exact question of how do you do Home Alone in like a modern Alexa age. Now, what I found is scrolling through the start of the film with all their little plants in the house. That it's, First off, it's way more overt about all the things that are going to play into later with people stepping on Legos long, long, long before they're used violently against the burglars. But here are a list of things that were either mentioned or shown on screen. Just mm. to remind you, this is a modern day Home Alone Z. Sure. Modern day. There's Homebot, which is your Alexa right there. That's mentioned by name. The Cloud is mentioned multiple times okay. for no reason. Uber, eBay. The house has metal detectors, apparently. I didn't see that, but someone mentions it. There's a kid using a VR headset okay. at the bottom. And yet, when I fast-forwarded towards the end of the film with the, all the violent, fun trap scenes, it's all Legos, Nerf guns trip trip wires and trip lines and there's a thing where they, they, they're getting, he's getting chased down by the side of the house and he's got a line so all the little um what's what's like that solidified ice that it's turned into Drass. like a yeah well like like pointy like pointy like oh icicles yeah like icicles exactly that like he pulls the line they all sort of break apart and fall on the rubber and it's like these are all like old-timey things. So, did they purposely set up the first half of the film to be all about these, like, new technological advancements mm. versus the end of the film where it's, oh, he's just using Legos and Nerf guns yeah, again. Yeah, essentially the same stuff. It. I thought that was weird Yeah, that it did that because wouldn't you want to incorporate... Can you even incorporate new technology with slapstick? You probably can with collective, actual, active imagination and thought which this film <laughs> this film did right i mean this film used its environment of its house which is i think a big part of the house as a character in it in itself to sure. the point where furnaces become almost uh, they come to life well they come to life <laughs> so it's like when when macaulay Culkin or kevin's putting the heater the the curling iron right on, on the on on the, the door handle yep. Or a using the environment, the side, so he, yeah. well, I think the blowtorch one is starting to. That's very like <laughs> that's pushing getting, it. That's, that's pretty bad. I know that's for like a flambe, and they're very rich. But it, it, it's like the fact that he knew that there's basically a flamethrower easily accessible to him is is a bit baffling to me. Yeah. There are points where I'm like, okay, the the, the, the cans of uh, paint yeah. that come flying down the stairs. That's relatively but, simple. It is. I mean. I'm never going to go, that's a bit contrived. Right. Like, oh, like, that's very lucky it hits that person in the face screen. Like, I'm never going to go that harsh on it. Yeah, yeah. But if you've got an active (laughs) flamethrower, I'm like, okay, settle down. Trying to straight up murder these people. Well, that's why I I love the joke. That's probably the hardest I laugh the whole movie is, like, when they finally catch him right at the very end before old man Murphy beats the crap out of them. He hangs up and he's basically like, "Um, what should we do with him? Oh, we're gonna we're gonna do to him what he did to us. I'm gonna get a blowtorch to his head, and it's, <laughs> I just started dying laughing because like that is the most shocking thing you could do to a child, yeah. and yet he did that to them. Yeah. That is fair enough. <laughs> yeah, he does get borderline like stuff that would actually kill people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do the find na- it funny the nail when, on the floor. 
that still makes me. That, that, you know, the funny thing That's is, you put that, at. you put it in a music. This really goes to show you how music and color and lighting changes the tone because that's mm. that's in how many times have you seen the nail in the floor in a horror movie quiet place yeah and it's like it's amazing what music and lighting does to a scene whereas you put that in home alone it's oh he stepped on a toe and he stepped yeah. on a really long nail <laughs> it's funny yeah. but he's gone cross-eyed so it's funny like he's got an iron print on his face yeah. like well that that's the that's the key to the idea of slapstick, but also the performances and, and how you make... How do you make getting your head blown by a blowtorch funny and not horrifying? Because that blowtorch scene can appear in Goodfellas and it's tonally completely <laughs> different, isn't it? But um, yeah, but I mean, in that particular moment, how he, he just kind of just stands there completely still and screams, so it's only really his mouth and eyes that are moving at all. Yeah. That's it's almost like that's kind of how you make a comedic. Yeah, is there's no motion because it's like real pain. You're probably flailing around. You're on the floor. Well, you're like your face is melting. I mean, to be fair, and we can tie this into Columbus's sort of directing style of mm. comedy. Yeah, because yep. there are elements in the first two Harry Potter films play with the same sort of stop reaction sort of base thing. I mean, when oh, Harry yeah, looking up at the free headed dog. Yeah. That's like an elongated reaction, yeah. Yeah, yeah or it's all the troll in the bathroom mm. and Yep. Uh where there, you know, this this menace is really just large. I mean, it's not intelligent, it's not mm. the only thing that's scary about it is it towers over everyone. Sure. Um and he's so I really do think without those films, that franchise doesn't get the acclaim it gets for its later films because sure mm. tonally it shifts completely but it's because the world was bright beautiful and vivid when it gets dark and gloomy mm. it has more resonance yeah and that's a that's an testament to columbus's direction art direction of the film yeah the, the fact that he tried to keep to the vibrancy of what rowling had written in the mm. first place rather than switching to, oh, well, they're teenagers and it's getting a bit angsty, so let's really angst it up. And it's why, to be honest, like, the fifth and sixth film in particular, and even, I would argue, the final four films for me have no no residual impact. Like, I've read yeah, very little out Those are all David Yates films. Wow. Five, six, seven, and eight. Yeah. Or 7.2, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Particularly five, six, seven, one. I don't right. care. Seven, two's all right. Seven two is like yeah. okay, cool. But well, I, I love, do not I love all the Harry Potter films. No. But I, but I, I'm with you in the sense that like the job that Chris Columbus did to set everything up. Like you're right with like his production and art design because that that's a huge part of a director's job as well is to influence what that looks like. Yeah. And at, like you said with tone, we could talk about the tone in Home Alone and how you make violence and slapstick all work in a family friendly um, environment. Mm-hmm. And then with Harry Potter, it's like well, how do you set up something that is wonderful, wonderful and whimsical, but also has this darkness sort of seeped into the backstory of everything, and that is going to slowly seep into the rest of the films. Mm. So, how do you start then, and where do you find that balance? Yeah, and uh, um, I, do I think, think he did a fantastic job. I agree, and I do think that the the lighter, brighter moments in the later films, in these Yates films mm. you're talking about, they don't hit the same emotional right. uppity. And, and okay. maybe at that point they shouldn't, because things are getting pretty messy and and hairy and and escalating in in terms of how mm. evil was really creeping into the world yeah 
And you know what yeah. I reckon part of that is? I a part of it is the lack of use of John Williams's score in those later films. He uses it in the very, very last film. Yeah. But I think that plays a big part into the whimsicalness of the earlier films yeah. and, and, and Chris Columbus's ones, which made me think when you when you first start Home Alone, the very first like piece that plays like dun 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 like with the title sequence, which looked eerily yeah. like the the Halloween title sequence. We should mention that. Mm. <laughs> it reminded me of the pumpkin. Um, but that music is like it has the same whimsical flair that Harry Potter does. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this is John Williams's and Chris Columbus's oh. first collaboration together. This is I mean, but this it's is like, also yes. it's like this is the man that casts those Harry Potter films. Yeah. It's like he has the biggest hand in shaping those films. Those mm. films could suck if he with had a, picked the wrong kids cast. with the yeah. wrong kids. Yeah. Like even everyone from Snape Hagrid McGonagall, yeah. like all of them. I mean, I know Dumbledore they recast, but like yeah, but they're and, all essential as, casting. As most people say it's like that switch in the Dumbledore kind of came at the right time mm. in terms of the tonal shift. Sure, with Karan coming in, and then I think Mark Day was his name. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's probably the best time for him to have. Not that but there was a best right. time it's he died, a, but no. Yeah, I know what you mean. He's old. I mean, let's not let's, <laughs> this happens. The world keeps turning. Yeah, yeah, that's um, exactly it. But yeah, no, it, it, it's. I think that that to me is the testament to his career because outside of the Home Alone films and the Harry Potter films, you know, you've got a couple of, you know, Doubtfire is a nice standout film. Um, yeah, I, some I, people I, think family Bison, loves Mrs. Doubtfire. Bicentennial Man's uh, okay. I've never seen it. Um, most people don't like Rent. I know that. Oh, okay. Is that that's like a mid two thousands two thousand five? Yeah, okay. Follow that's the um the yeah. AIDS epidemic Broadway show. Oh, that that's right. Screen. That's right, yep. Um which kind of was met with the same Schumacher Phantom of the Opera around the same time too. Okay. Reaction of just being a bit plain, a bit nothing mm. from a very vibrant Broadway adaptations are difficult in the wrong hands though. They often yeah come very one note and um yeah yeah it, it's tough because you go further into his career with percy jackson and and pixel we i mean pixels we talked about as an adam sandler film through <laughs> and through but joke even percy jackson i saw it when it came out in theaters and I, was, I, I guess i was excited for more but at the same time mm. actually did do another one didn't they in they did. 2000 and oh 13 see a monsters isn't it? it i must have not seen that one it's called see a monsters one. isn't it yeah yeah yeah. It's interesting, yeah. Well, obviously, the Lightning Thief's one, so I think I actually started reading the books. But it, it kind of came to that era where, I mean, obviously, this is around the Twilight era in terms Hunger of fan- games. Hunger Games, fantasy books being adapted. I think Hunger Games is a bit of an outlier there, but I think generally these kind of it was just a bad time for these films because I think I think maybe it was the effects work, maybe not a bad, maybe it was we were inundated. So like potentially, yeah, because of the Twilight, like you said, the Stephanie Myers sort of the Twilight. Yeah, yeah. I think people were already apprehensive that all of them would follow the angsty teen era. And then mm. you see Hunger Games drop and everyone's pleasantly surprised by the first film. And then... I really want to rewatch Hunger Games, all of them. I remember really not liking the last one. I hate most of them. I only can only tolerate the first one. I think the Damn. first one's fine. I always said, um, I've, well, always, I've said this for a long time, a Hunger Games like online open world video game... Sort of, I hate using the word Fortnite style, but the idea of there being a battle royale, big open map, people trying to kill each other, like Hunger a Games film, style. no, like a game, okay. like an online game. I think that would be fantastic. 
Don't they have those? Isn't Battle Royale's been like the, the... No, but I'm saying like a Hunger Games, specifically Hunger Games version of that. Surprise it never... Be, I guess it's because... That would be fantastic. The killing side. Mm. That was not in the... But it's interesting because obviously as a result, the Percy Jackson's tried... They tried to give that a run. Yeah. Maze Runner. Mm. Um, yeah, Maze Runner as well. I never, I'd never got into that. Divergent. Yeah. You know. Was Percy Jackson sort of the start of this... Yeah, this and Hunger Games came out around. This one was the first to kind of bit, bite the bullet and being not very good. Right. I mean, Twilight is kind of its own beast mm-hmm. because that's sort of not the same sort of. No, we're talking about the angsty, Ethan. the angsty teen, right? Vibe. Um, the the chosen one. Chosen. I am number four. Those kinds of. Films. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> wow. I am number four. <laughs> what a damn pick. <laughs> Man, that was a good one. That's a good one. I forgot about. <laughs> number I am four. number four. Oh um, my god. Yeah. And Take maybe maybe the they were hoping he would capture the same sort of Harry Potter magic that he would set up a world that was... it, at the time it makes perfect sense for him to direct Percy Jackson. That makes a lot of sense on paper, yeah. but I, I think you're right. It might have been sort of a doomed time period with these films. Or... Pixels, he might have just needed a bit of money. To be honest, could be the result of something like that. Pixels, I I think he was there purely for like the visual effects side of it. At that point, Harry Potter, Percy Jackson, he had enough time to do visual effects. And stuff. then his latest was a 2020, which was the Christmas Chronicles Part 2. Oh, another Christmas film's like, let's watch it. Yeah. I, I refuse to believe that's good. <laughs> I'm not it's... trying to dunk on Chris Columbus, I'm just saying. it does. The poster doesn't really do it justice. Hmm. It's born the same year as my mum. Oh. Um, so he's, what, go. 64. So where does Chris Columbus go from here? What's, what is the film? Is he pigeonholed now in these, like... Netflix-looking cheesy Christmas films. Just looking at that poster of the latest one you just mentioned. Mm. Like, where do you go from there? Where do you go? Is this it for Chris Columbus? Because it's good to... I feel like it's very good at the end of a director's corner to sort of sit there and go, right, what's next? You know, mm. we've 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 just talked about Chazelle's new film. We've talked about um, Nolan's new film. You know, these films that are coming out that we're very enticed for, obviously. Yeah, I mean, but at the same time, these are directors that haven't been around as long as Chris Columbus. In fact, Chris Columbus sort of come... You know, he's in a weird period because you think of the 70s, your Lucas's, mm-hmm. um, Ford Coppola's and all of that. You know, that squad. Uh, Spielberg and everyone as well. And then you jump forward to the 80s where it's like, okay, now we're getting... You're getting a lot more Spielberg, but you're also getting like Zemeckis, these kinds of directors. I feel like Columbus sort of fits in that category, but not really... Okay. So I'm trying to think what other, like... I feel like Chris Columbus is definitely, like, okay, 90s, now he's becoming a household name. And I'm trying to think what what so other what, directors sort of peaked in that era. What kind of film could he do? Hmm. Or is he going to be put in this sort of high-budget B-movie slot for the rest of his career? Yeah, because I think... I think Harry Potter's sort of an outlier. Yeah. Because it was... Obviously, this adaptation of this very, 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 very famous book, yeah. book series, fantasy series, and him trying to do that again with Percy Jackson, I don't think that quite worked. You could try it again. I mean, Netflix, they just put out that 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 show. Or it's a movie. I know Charlie's uh, Farron is on it, but... What, uh, magical witches and uh, magical schools and things like that. There's still things like that being made. So we could try again. Hmm. But then he tried he tried to do Christmas again and then that, that became his recent film, which isn't looked on favourably from what I'm seeing. 
So I don't know, unless he just does something radically different, but he's not a George Lucas type where he has like, I don't think he has these origins in these super auteur short films, at least as far as I'm aware of, so. Yeah, and from a writing know. point of view, he's probably most well known for the Goonies and Gremlins. Mm. So, long time removed. Yeah, yeah. It It is interesting. I mean, I would... He's a household name. He's made some fantastic films, including Home Alone and all of that, Harry Potter. But I don't know what he should try next that is, you know, that will work. You know what mm. I mean? I don't know what that, that looks like. Before we move on, I do want to talk a bit about some of the filmmaking tricks and homages that he uses that I picked up on. I think that's a nice way to sort okay. of wrap it up on that end. I liked at the start of the film he uses a, a right to left pan for Kevin's POV when everyone's sort of angry at him they've just spilled the drinks on the pizzas and everything mm-hmm. and then the next morning they reverse that they do a left to right POV of the empty house I thought it was very clever uh, when he goes on to look for his family it's a good way to establish all the different rooms and the geography of the house uh, for obviously the later scenes when he's mm-hmm. defending that house when the family are running around after they've realised they've woken up late it's a it's a time lapse which is a bit odd. It's the only time. It's very he, odd. He, the only time he does anything like that in this film, where he plays with time in, in in almost a real time way. So I thought that was quite interesting. I love, and going back to that church scene, where we talk about, you know, him and, and old man Murray talk about like what they're afraid of. He's afraid of him, and Murray's afraid of reaching out to his son, and they sort of had that conversation. It's the only time the film really gets into that. I mean, we've had pretty standard shot, reverse shot, over-the-shoulder mm. conversations in the film, but this is really the one that feels like it slows down. Um, and the shallow depth, it's very shallow focus. Mm. Uh, so much so that the candles behind Kevin are so, like, dithered and blurred out, they're almost changing shape, and I love I love that effect. So there's a, I, I like that. That almost feels like an entirely different scene. And apparently that scene, and his inclusion entirely, that character was also Chris Columbus during an uncredited rewrite. Really? Which, yeah, I was like, wow, that's some of the best stuff in the whole film. So, kudos. But that was really excellent. Homages. Ferris Bueller, of course. Yes. Massive. And, and it's interesting because they're not necessarily 4-4 breaks, but he's clearly, he's speaking out loud, he's staring like right through the soul of the camera. <laughs> right into the audience's soul. It feels very Ferris Bueller-esque. <laughs> when he's saying these lines like I made my family disappear the fact that when he runs down the hallway up the up the stairs he always runs the wrong way first to sort of look directly into us and then turn around does that a few times so that that gives me a Ferris Bueller vibe mm. but uh, one of the other ones I noticed is Harry and Marv's shadows their first robbery attempt of the McAllister house through the window curtain I was like that feels like Nosferatu <laughs> <laughs> the shadow cast on the wall and finally there's a shot in the plane where it sort of does this dolly pushing over everyone's heads in the plane and that reminded me of the famous dolly pushing shot from Wings 20, uh, 1927 wow which that that's a shot I always try and remember because it's such a great shot of them going over all these tables at this like outdoor restaurant setting mm. and I was like oh that, that kind of feels like what it's homaging a little bit in that scene so Chris Columbus doing his homework yeah, I really appreciate it. Jake, mm. what was your highlight scene? I have... Well, I have two answers, Zeke. Oh, he's got two. Well, I'll say my highlight scene is probably the montage of him building those 
traps for the final showdown. And specifically sure. because of the editing. Okay. Like the way it cuts from one shot of him pulling up the, the zip line to another shot of it already placed and it sort of fills the frame nicely. It, they sort of do this almost a, a sonic match cut between the dinning of the Christmas tree lighting up and then the dinning of the, the microwave like shutting off. Just a lot of little moments like that where I'm like, wow, this is a really cleverly thought out montage where every shot... It's not like they've just got a bunch of shots of him setting mm. up traps and then just put it in a scene. It's, they've thought very carefully about which shot cuts to the next and how they all sort of integrate together. Yeah. I thought it was really great. Now, I'll ask you what your highlight scene is, but I, I'll have an additional question for you after that. Okay. So what's your highlight scene for Home Alone? I'd say my highlight scene is probably... I actually really enjoy the um, shopping trip. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with the attendee. I think that really shows sort of the charisma of Macaulay Culkin. Mm. And we haven't talked about him at all, really, this podcast. No. Yeah. No. Mainly because he faded off the map, didn't he? That was a whole whole thing, right? After the yeah, well, he's got his like, red letter media comeback and <laughs> things yeah. like that. But I think... You know, we talk about that broadly of, of Chris Columbus sort of letting an actor carry the film. And Macaulay Culkin, he has to carry this whole film as a <laughs> child. And I think, like, his acting's not, you know, amazing. Yeah. But I think he does have that snarkiness to him. And I believe the maturity when he... You're, you're right, he goes shopping and he sort of has, like, this not cold delivery with the clerk, but it's, it is a very mature delivery. You don't expect an eight-year-old mm-hmm. to give. So I, I like that it, he can play both those versions and show that development really well. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. that interaction. That's a cool scene. And then the follow-up from the interaction, him walking and then his bag slip. <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. Oh, God. And out in the cold. Well, the other thing, almost the opposite of a highlight scene, Zeke, what's your favourite contraption that was made in the film? Because mine... Might be the dummies and cardboard cutouts he creates and animates to pretend like there are people home that night when the robbers look through the windows. That I love the fact that he must have been doing that for several hours straight, yeah. not knowing whether it's worked or not, <laughs> whether they've come by or not. It's so great. I like the two. I like the mm. the firecracker gunshots. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought that was really really quite clever using that. Um, Angels of something. I can't remember what it was called. Yeah, I think it's a fake movie. Yeah. Yeah, which I kept thinking it was a real movie, but it's not. Yeah. I thought that was really, (laughs) really quite hilarious. And I I was a big fan of that. And then, to be honest, the the ice on the stairs. Oh, yeah. Though it's simple, it was very funny. Yeah, Um, he's lucky that those weren't uh, textured steps. That they um so the water has nowhere yeah, to kind of go. Very safe, just in general, <laughs> to have stairs like that. Um, when it gets that cold, yeah. Yeah, I think those two are quite probably the two I. Enjoy. Those are good. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, the no. Cardboard? Yeah, the cardboard yeah. stuff, but that that's not a violent one. Mm. I just I like the idea from doing that for several hours. Been like, has it worked yet? Have they gone? <laughs> he had a lot of time on his hands. To be fair, that's true. He wasn't doing much else. So, fair enough. Yeah, no worries. Well, I guess Home Alone is currently out on Disney Plus as well as Home Alone 2. Yes, I've still never seen Home Alone 2. I've seen the four-second clip of Trump. That's it. I should watch the second one. So I, I guess they go to New York. And then they leave and him. And he's left in New York. Yep. And it's the same Pesci and... Um, yeah, and Daniel Stern, yeah. yeah. 
back nice. to. I'm keen to see it. And it's actually look. I honestly thought it would get like lambasted. I always thought it would be like really good first movie, mm. really poor. But Immediate. they're both given pretty decent ratings. Okay. Well, the first one's still rated higher, but well, there you the go. Chris one's... Columbus is keeping the keeping the quality in check until yeah. we, until he loses the IP, then then it goes downhill. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, speaking of streaming platforms, Jack, what news to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Uh, not a lot, Zeke. I think people are winding down for Christmas. Mm. But we do have a few films that have been playing in theaters, like Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical. It's now coming to Netflix this week. As well as another film. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, films like Captain Phillips and Step Brothers, The Notebook, Easy A. Those are coming to stand in the next week. We've got Top Gun Maverick coming to Paramount Plus this week, which, hey, now it's up for a bunch of awards. So. Mm-hmm. There you go. Worth checking out as well as Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is coming to Prime this week. Okay. So finally, that's on streaming for people, which I'm excited about. And Logan Lucky, that's also coming to Prime this Great week. Great movie. Yeah, very exciting. Fun movie. Now, new to cinemas, I want to dance with somebody. Okay. Zeke, do you want to dance with me? Or am I um, not somebody? No, it's it's with somebody tonight. Oh, you are somebody. Fair enough. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I like, I'll take it. And this film, of course, sees Naomi Aki star as Whitney Houston in the new musical biopic from director Cassie Lemons, who did the very okay Harriet a few years back. That was a, that was a bad year to make a film in. It was a tough year. So, uh, <laughs> 2019, so good luck with that. Uh, that starts screening at Hoyt's on Sunday the 25th, so if you've got nothing else to do on Christmas Day, there you go. Otherwise, it goes wide the following day on Boxing Day. Okay. So keep a lookout for that. Uh, Luna are screening a film called Eternal Spring, which is an animated documentary. Same vein as Tower, maybe. We shall see. Uh, that explores Falun Gong's 2002 hijacking of broadcast television stations in China and the country's continued repression of ethnic and religious minority groups. Well, that sounds like a hard watch. That sounds hectic. It sounds very hectic. 20 years in the making, I guess, mm. from 2002. Now, uh, Luna are also rescreening a bunch of films, like, of course, Love Actually, of course. Uh, but you've also got films like Don't Worry Darling and Moonage Daydream that are rescreening as well. Mm. I've got the Blu-ray now for Moonage Daydream. Yes, you do. Thank I you just to looked Kirstie. at it. So, yeah. So, uh, if you really want to see that one on the big screen one more time, you've got a Girlfriend chance Girlfriend of the Luna. show. Girlfriend of the show. One of the two girlfriends of the show. <laughs> there you go. We should just do an episode out of nowhere where it's just it's Kirsty and Lucinda having a conversation. Yeah, so it's just them replacing us. <laughs> exactly. They hijacked the show. <laughs> Much like the broadcast television stations were hijacked in 2002. <laughs> oh, my God. And Move finally, on. finally, this one's for you. The Last Waltz is playing at Palace this Friday the 23rd, continuing their Scorsese run to celebrate his 80th birthday. It's going to be so sad, I probably won't be able to see oh, it. That's okay. There's a Perth Glory game. Um, I don't think I could convince Lucinda to go watch the, the band. last waltz. Yeah, no, the last waltz. That's okay. Why don't it be a Friday? I know. Well, that was the same. That was the same with Taxi Driver. Yeah, it was on a bad Friday, and I couldn't go. Very upsetting. But that's it. That's what's coming to cinemas and streaming. Yeah. This week, right? Well, I guess it's time for us to move into our <laughs> film, film of the week next week. Jake, what are we watching? Well, we're watching the aforementioned secret Netflix film <gasps> that I didn't mention. Excited about this seat. Very excited. Next week in the show, we're watching Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Ladies and gentlemen. This is it. You expected the mystery. Get your hand off of that. 
You expected a puzzle. But for one person on this island, this is not a game. Will you explain it to us then, detective? mystery start tech billionaire miles braun invites his friends for a getaway on a private greek island but when somebody turns up dead detective benyol blanc is put on the case james bond back at it i will i will say zeke i love that log line because it's cheeky it, the timing of these things, the invitation to the Greek island, somebody turning up dead, when Benyard Blanc is put on the case, very deliberate, uh, what's it called, uh, p- pacing, uh, the order, Structuring the, structure, the, the order of those words is very enticing. Like, I love this film so much. It's finally coming to Netflix later this week. What What day? Uh, I think the 23rd. So that's Friday. Sweet. But that's okay, because even though you're busy Friday, you watch it on Saturday, you can watch Absolutely. it on Sunday. You can I got watch plenty it of time. You can watch it whenever you want, Zeke. I really. got time in the world. I know. Very exciting. <laughs> you're, you're, fi- you're free from the chains. Exactly. That's The shackles of... Uh, I broke the chains. I know. There you go. So. But until next week... Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Science Show podcast. I was Z. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Dun, dun, dun.